Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get to know the inside of the music industry, with those in the know, and we give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. I have with me on the line right now a member of the 90s R&B group, Shy, who I've been a fan of over the years, and over time, I have become a great friend to this man. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mr. Mark Gay. Mark, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Oh, real. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to be in your presence. I know you've been working on different things and avenues for doing uh, shows for years. And um, I'm, I'm glad that we talk junk about sports and music and everything on a daily basis. So now it's a good format to be able to put it on Zoom now and actually record it and, and talk to you and just, just light it up. Yeah, man, it's definitely been a pleasure having your friendship over the years, and you've played a big part in my wife and I's lives with putting us in touch with Angela and Damon. They did our premarital counseling, so definitely got to thank you for that, and shout out to Angela Garcia Shelby and Damon Shelby. If you are in the Albuquerque area, go to God's House Church, located on Wyoming Boulevard in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yes, I'm definitely plugging, nothing wrong with plugging for Jesus, amen? So definitely go to God's House, get a good word spiritually, and good people, great times, great worship. Absolutely, absolutely, great people. Yeah, and um, I find this quite interesting, me interviewing you, because I had a chance to interview Carl Groove. So it's interesting to hear your take on things oh. about Shy and everything that's that's gone on. And I see you're repping the HU, like always. Yep. You <laughs> always. guys are on fire right now with uh, Biden's number two pick. So I know the pretty girls and pearls are going nuts right now. Everybody's, the whole campus is going nuts. And then on top of that, my daughter grew up to Howard. So she actually worked part of the campaign last uh, last fall. So she was going on the train from Baltimore to, I mean, from DC to Baltimore to do, actually she did some artwork for the mural work of uh, Kamala Harris's campaign, who is our Senator in the state of California. So my, my daughter's grown up with her and she's just over elated with everything that's going on. Even through the pandemic, she's home now, but you know, when she goes back to Howard, they're going to lose their minds all year long. Yeah. So no homecoming this year, but it'll feel like homecoming. And for those of you that don't know what the pretty girls and pearls are, that's the sorority of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority incorporated. Shout out to the AKAs. I also want to shout out Deltas, Zetas, Sigma Gamma Rose, and also the fraternities Alpha Phi Alpha, Phi Beta Sigma, Kappa Alpha Psi, Omega Psi Phi, and Iota Phi Theta. We got to shout them out, even though there's not a lot of them rapping. Got to get everybody in. Got to get everybody. D9 is really important in this. It's going to be a, a big uh, campaign coming up with the whole, all the organizations working together, uh, working with other organizations as well to make sure that we could, you know, make that push for the office in November. So we're supporting everybody. No, no votes left behind. We're going to put it all on the line because we have to. We have to. There's too much stuff going on. We have to uh, make sure that we do the right thing at this point. Right. Make sure you exercise your ballot at the ballot box. November vote. Request your absentee ballot. Know your state laws for voter registration. And if you feel that you have been intimidated, there's numbers that you can call to make sure that your rights have not been violated. So let's do all that we can to make sure our vote is heard come November and get the current occupant out of office. But that's neither here nor there. So let's go ahead and let's get it cracking. You were born and raised in the 305 Miami. 
Miami. So how growing up in Miami influenced you musically with all the different sounds coming out there from the Latin salsa to Uncle Luke and everything else in between? You know, uh, Miami was a, a different environment because you grew up with a lot of diversity and uh, the Latin influence uh, comes into play in certain areas, but Miami also has other areas that are segregated from, from most of the Latin communities. So you have Liberty City, Alapata, um, Carroll City, and uh, all those areas versus, uh, not versus, but Hialeah, uh, Calle Ocho, and then it's just a real diverse community, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Dominicans. So you, there's so much knowledge of music to soak in your environment that I think I was just taking all of those in. And when growing up, the Black Station was a little, a little smaller than it is now because we didn't have the New York influence that we that we do now. So WEDR um, was the radio station that I grew up on and 99 jams now and they played all of the music that i grew up on and they didn't really play luke as much luke was part of the south miami djs uh when i was going to the skating rinks when i was young 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 with my brother and uh they came through the ranks and they just put on shows at the skating rink and then it got bigger and bigger turned into two live crew and most of that so by the time i got to high school it just kind of blew up um, before the controversies and everything else. But between having the base of that, the uh, Hispanic influence of dance music, um, all of that, it just really influenced the whole culture. You add gospel to that because, you know, it's a strong gospel background impulse as well. Um, you put all that together and you just have a gumbo of music in Miami that, you know, needed to come out, needed to explode and, and some kind of way over the years, it, it just got bigger and bigger and it's transformed into a, a more musical locale where people want to go develop their music now. And, and it's, it's definitely grown a lot since, uh, since the 90s, the early 90s. Mm, yeah, so you were part of those early Pac Jam shows with Uncle Luke and the Toilet Bowl and then Captain D coming and all of yeah. the stuff. This was before WAP, the original WAP. That was before all of that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also want to mention we lost an icon in Southern Soul, Miami, born and bred, Betty Wright. May she rest in peace. I didn't know about Deep City Records until there was a documentary on PBS. And they were talking about how she cut her first record with them at the age, I believe, 14. Yeah. She was discovered at a local record store picking up a record that she won on a con in a contest. Mm -hmm. And that led her to sign the Deep City. But I didn't realize that. Miami, that little pocket of that region had such a big soul sound with that one little label. And it was just amazing how just now I was just finding out about it. Yeah. And uh, there was a group, I can't remember the name right now, but it was uh, Marcus Cooper, Cooper's dad. And it was uh, his, there was a song that they had on the All I Need Is One More Chance. And it was a three member group. And they, uh, they sang that song, and I grew up on that, between that and the Betty Wright and everything else. And then that just, you know, it made me remember a lot of music. So, Wesley, you have to hold on right now. <laughs> so that, that having that aspect of listening to music on the radio station, having the local input, and just knowing that a local group could get on the radio station, 
and actually perform and do local stuff and have it get to a certain point in the region, let you know that if you put in the work, it was going to make sense. And But Miami was all about supporting Betty Wright. I mean, you, you heard her songs every night. There was a slow jam section and you heard her music and it, it, it just got really into the crux of your soul and, and made it work. Mm-hmm. And then also we have TK Records, which put out KC in the Sunshine yeah. Band. Yeah. And once they exploded, it was everybody was taking a look at what was going down in Miami. Then that later paved the way for what was to come with Gloria Estefan. Yes. Yeah. And they and Gloria established their, their own entity and their record company and the Latin explosion. And that just opened a whole bunch of doors for everybody else to come behind them. And they, you know, pretty much managed you know all all of the artists after them and that eventually turned into john cicada we actually ended up touring with a lot in the early 90s and he just blew up and and from there it just went it just went all over the, all over the map mm, and john cicada along with gloria estefan don mm-hmm. lewis and countless others the rock were alums of this little school out of coral gables i'm gonna put it up <laughs> Got to put up to you. And the thing is that everybody knew the School of Music at the University of Miami is one of the best in town. And uh, my my high school choir, I went to Miami Killing in Senior High, and we used to always go to the University of Miami to do like there were always choral performances, uh, choral not testing, but they actually had contests over there. So we the big thing to do was to go to the University of Miami and to perform. So we knew that school brought out a whole bunch of Manhattan trans- transfer was over there as well. So they did a lot of work over at University of Miami. So we heard a lot of good music in the area. Mm-hmm. Now, also at this time, the football team was starting to come into dominance, you know, with Coach Snellenberger. Then after he left, pre-Dallas Cowboys, Jimmy Johnson, and then when he went to Dallas, you had Dennis Erickson, then Butch Davis, Larry Coker, and to just think about all of the talent that came out of Miami during that during those years, and I'm sure it really had a big impact on the city and pride that our little town, which wasn't considered a football powerhouse like a Nebraska or USC or Alabama, just yeah. got put on the map and was cranking out first rounders year after year after year. Yeah, we knew we had the talent as far as uh, football and basketball players and baseball players too, because the University of Miami was well known for their baseball program as well. And I even had a friend, a couple of friends go through their program and ended up going to minor leagues and some of them ended up going to the majors as well. So, no, we knew we had the talent, but it was a matter of being the breakout because there was nothing in Miami at that point but the Miami Dolphins who we love, but at the same time, we wanted to have more exposure for different sports. So, you know, we just knew it because you go to the park system, you saw the talent, you saw all over uh, the peewee leagues, the high schools, everything else, but you, you just needed that one, that one championship. And when we beat Nebraska that year, oh, it was, it was all, all going forward. Go make it happen at that point. Mm-hmm. And the quote, Ed Reed, they were dominating, and Joaquin said, dominate, and we ain't doing it. So, Ed Reed, 
Hall of Famer in Canton, Ray Lewis, Hall of Famer in Canton. We could go down the list of all the University of Miami yeah. alums yeah. that are in Canton. Randall Hill, so you know, you gotta you gotta say Randall. <laughs> Mr. Run through the tunnels in the That's cotton bowl. <laughs> it wasn't my fault that he left the tunnel open. It wasn't my thought that Toba Bain ran down on the kickoff and knocked my man out. I think that's what made people love and hate Miami is that yeah. they had a swagger about them. They didn't care that they were fresh. I mean, what school would show up before a bowl game wearing fatigues? <laughs> it didn't work out so well, but it was definitely of doing it. <laughs> Interception. 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 And uh, get, I think Miami has not worn fatigue since. I wouldn't wear it. No, no. Jimmy's like, let's pull that. That's not going to work. No. So what led you to want to go to Howard University, knowing that Florida is rich in terms of universities? Like we have Miami, Florida right. Atlantic, Florida International, University yeah. of Florida out of Gainesville, FAMU, Florida State, Bethune-Cookman. So what led you wanting to go to Chocolate City, a.k.a. D.C.? Well, I, I think um, I grew up around a lot of uh, historically black colleges. And um, I grew up with the Orange Blossom Classic, which meant that FAMU was going to perform in their band every every year. Once every year, they would, they would do the game down in Miami. And so one of the beauties of being able to see the game in the band was that I think in 77, they brought down Doug Williams and the Grambling Tigers. And, they, and I saw... HBCU play football at a level that I had never seen before. And you knew Doug was going to make the pros and he eventually went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, but you didn't know that college football was going to be on the brink of going to that level. And fam, you actually had a very good team as well. So being around that, my parents went to a Tuskegee uh, Institute at the time and it became Tuskegee University and then my brother went there as well so I was going to homecomings at Tuskegee every year in the fall and uh, I knew that that was a p place I could potentially go but there was this thing tagging in my head saying why don't you go to Howard why don't you go to Howard it could be a good school for you they have a med school you know at the time I wanted to become a doctor and and it kept tugging at me and then the Alphas had a convention in 86. So I happened to go um, to the convention. We went over to campus and there was nobody on the yard. I mean, nobody, nobody on the yard. It was a summer day and I just went over there with my parents and I stood in the middle of the yard and I said, why does this feels like home? This feels like home. And that became the place I wanted to go. And then I put in the application Everything went through, got accepted by the next fall. And once I got to Howard, it was a totally different thing than what I even imagined and so much more. So by the time I got there, I was like, oh, this is even beyond. And I happened to meet my, my best friend, Jamal Johnson, the first week of school. I met people who my parents knew their kids, their parents and their kids were coming to Howard too. So between that, I mean, it was just a great decision, one of the best decisions I've ever made besides, you know, finding my, my wife. And then, because uh, that decision led to me finding these people in my life that I, everything I would do would lead to these great decisions. So if I didn't go to Howard, I don't know where my life would. It would have led somewhere really, really, really good, but at the same time, it wouldn't be what it is now. And I, that one decision made, made a big difference in my life.
Right. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with the legacy of HBCUs, Howard is considered one of the premier HBCUs in the country. Generations of students have gone there, have matriculated to go into various professions. Now, you mentioned that your parents went to Tuskegee. Were they there around the same time Lionel Richie and the Commodores were students there? They were there before. So they actually knew then they knew the Commodores actually at an early point before they even grew up. And, and one little tidbit, my dad was in a group called the Collegians. So he was actually in a singing group during the time that he was in school. And I didn't know this stuff until like way later in life. So I never knew. And then I saw the pictures. I was like, wow. And so when I finally told my mom that I was in a singing group called Shy, she was like, well, I have a picture for you and I'm going to show it to you. And I'm looking at a picture of my dad in a five person group singing at school. And I was like, wow, this is like really amazing. Never knowing that, cause we never talked about it um, uh, growing up. You know, it's stuff that doesn't come up when you're just you know, talking to your parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think anybody thought I would be in a singing group either, but it, it, it just led to that path. And, and so it's kind of amazing that he went to school at Tuskegee, then Lionel Richie, they, they knew certain people. I think they knew Ronald Lepree. I think they knew him. I think he was the bass player, but they knew of him. And then the group just blew up and, mm-hmm. and, and Tuskegee was on the map at that point. Now, did you do any singing into prior groups before Shy, like for school talent shows or for the Step I Out did. show? I did everything I could do, um, not only at Howard, but high school, I did talent shows. Um, for the church conferences, you know, because my, my grandfather's a pastor at AME Church um, growing up. So I would go to every conference I could, and we would always put together a group to do some type of performance. And I really got into music because I learned how to play piano from my uncle who taught me piano when I was about 12. So after choir rehearsal, I would go over to my, my grandparents' house and he would teach me piano. And I, I just kept practicing and practicing. And eventually by the time I was about 16, 17, I started writing music for the first time and, and started writing those songs. And those songs turned into uh, songs I would perform in the talent shows in high school. And then I was singing in the choir in high school. And, and from there, it just the, the kept going, kept rolling and rolling. And I was really with some really talented people in high school where uh, they were riding. They were, you know, the leader of the marching band, uh, Cal Roberts, he's passed away. But this guy was so talented. I mean, he inspired me to do way more because he played all the church chords. And it was amazing. I, mean, I couldn't play those chords like he could at the time. So I was just learning from him. He was learning from me and we were just putting it together. And, and by the time we came to our graduation, we wrote the song for graduation and uh, we performed it. We were switching off playing piano parts and it, it was just pretty amazing to be part of, uh, of a legacy like that at, at Killian. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned your high school has a legacy as far as for music. How are they athletic-wise? Were they up to the same part as Miami Northwestern as far as football? For, for the most part. I mean, uh, Northwestern started winning, I think, a little bit more once we left. But uh, my program, they got a lot of, a lot of kids into uh, college. And like I said, Randall Hill was part of that program. But they were the number one uh, team as far as state track they were the fastest guys in the state. So we had a whole bunch of talent at the school and on the football field, we might not have put it together when we were there, but they ended up winning a state championship later on, like maybe like 10 years after we left. Mm 
So there was definitely talent at the school. Our rival was Southridge and Palmetto, which where my dad actually taught at. Um, so those rivals just kept, I mean, the, these guys, we would compete with them in everything, every sport. It was Southridge, Palmetto, Killian, Southridge, Palmetto, Killian, Southridge. And then, and then of course, we'll meet the other teams, Northwestern, Carroll City, Miami High, and some other schools. We would meet them along the way just to get to the point where we could get to state. But in basketball, it was a, it was a whole different thing, too. And Miami High was one of the premier programs as far as state basketball program. So you had to get through Miami High to get to state at that point. Mm. Now, is there a difference as far as the regional styles in Florida, like the South Florida, Miami, Central Florida, Orlando, Tampa, and Northern Florida, Tallahassee, Gainesville, then Pensacola? Is there a difference between those three parts of the state in terms of um, um, living? They're, they're, in very, they're very different. As far as the athleticism, no. As far as uh, I think just us being a bigger city, I think you have to deal with more talent to cut through to become the top dog in, in Miami, uh, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, because you can't leave out Broward County, you know, when dealing with sports, they have uh, one of the top programs now, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, their, their sports program is second to none and they play all over America now. And they, they will beat teams from Vegas, Texas, you name it, put them on the I mean, they're, they're going to play with them. So between Dade and Broward, having that much talent, you knew that you had to train hard, as hard as the best talent in the city. Um, but as far as Jacksonville, Tallahassee, their, their numbers just weren't um, where we were. But as far as having the talent and being able to go to the schools and mesh well, yeah, they, they had that too. And they ended up going to Florida State, University of Florida, and now they go to actually the University of Central Florida as well as well which is one of the biggest no it is the biggest college in the state of florida now i think it's at either between forty-eight thousand and sixty-four thousand undergrad um so it's a huge college that all of a sudden just popped up and then and then hey it's here is and it's not going anywhere the, the university of florida florida state they have to deal with university of central florida now as well as university of south florida as well so these schools are coming for them yep that's what sliding some public sandwiches doing that recruiting trip would do for you. That's your yeah. selling point. Hey, we got public sandwiches. You don't have a public at Murray State. You don't have a public at the University of Oregon. We got public sandwiches and we got theme parts and we can get you an all-season pass. Just don't exactly. tell nobody. Exactly. Exactly. Right, but that story. Yeah, but Florida's winning right now. I mean, we got Teddy Bridgewater as our starting quarterback, who's a Miami Northwestern alum. And then the cover boy of Man 21, Lamar Jackson, is from down that area, right? Yeah, he's from Broward County, I think. Um, I can't remember which school right now. But, yeah, he, he's from from the area. And these guys, I mean, you, you grow up training in that humidity. I mean, you know, you're going to be a certain type of talent. I can't believe they let him go to Louisville because he really shouldn't have been able to leave the state. But – once he got up there, he lit it up, and I'm very, very proud of him. And, and seeing his journey along the way, you know, hey, every team in the NFL wishes they drafted him now, don't they? Right. Everybody, and I think Teddy will actually do well at Carolina, although I was sad to see Cam go, but hopefully Papa Ann will make up the money that he's lost, and Cam will be dressing up as the Quaker Oat Man for his press conference up in New England. I hope he enjoys uh, that he cold weather. 
He's going to be dressing up every day. He got better weather to dress up for the cold. Uh, he's going to have the Afghans. He's going to have everything. While have- Belichick is going to have his cutoff hoodie and his headset. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's not changing. <laughs> yeah, while Brady and Gronk, Gronk is going to enjoy Tampa, and Brady probably got an impossible sub at Publix right now. The Brady sub. I mean, that's just what it's going to be. Tom Brady sub Brady. with nothing but avocado, impossible meat, no bread, and he's having all his offensive linemen eat it with the TB12 juice. You know it's going to have it right beside. <laughs> yeah, 12-ounce TB12 juice. Go that yeah, Publix. Yeah, yeah so, yeah, so really now fun. with Shy, were there any other members in the group before Garfield, Darnell, and Carl, or was it just – you three and the original, no, the original foundation was actually for a talent show, um, for for the homecoming show, and it was actually the group was called Spirit. And at that time, Garfield was not a member of that particular group, and it was a guy named Kevin Monroe who was a, a, a pretty much a, a movie executive at this point now, and Kevin Bryan plus Darnell, Carl, and myself, and we sang uh, Boys to Men's Please Don't Go and uh, a couple of other songs. So we sang at the talent show. And, you know, Howard is one of those places where, you know, if they don't like you, they'll boo you. And uh, we got on stage, and they might have booed a little bit at first, but we sang those notes just well enough to where, you know, we got some applause. And it let us know we had something. We didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but we knew it was something. So um, after that, we kind of kept practicing. And then Kevin knew he couldn't really hang. He was an engineer, imagine engineering major so he knew he couldn't really hang with the practice schedule and so Darnell and Garfield were actually roommates um, from freshman year so Darnell brought Garfield to the table and then we started singing together and the first song we actually performed together was If I Ever Fall in Love so we performed it all over campus for about six months and we kept getting the response like we got from the radio after it got on the radio uh, but we got that response all over campus and we sang it everywhere. We would sing it at the drop of a dime just just because we knew we could sing it that well. And uh, man, one of the best experiences ever in life is to be able to sing your song all over and have a response from people saying, we love your song and this is why I love it. And you guys go forward and, and make sure you do it. Right, because I remember interviewing Carl had told me that how he got the song on PGC was, I think it was a softball game or something, and yeah. one of the DJs from PGC was playing it, ended up I slipping the it. tape, and I then thought. that's where it started getting that buzz around the DMV. Absolutely, and Paco Lopez is actually in Vegas now, and props to him because he's the one that circulated the song. He he had it in D.C., but then he pushed it to, I think, Phoenix and Houston. And when it went to these other locations, the song popped as well. So if it wasn't for them getting the song out when nobody had any, nobody even knew what we looked like. There was no picture, no nothing. We had pictures, but when the song was being, you know, transferred around, there was, there was no pictures. Nobody knew what we looked like. They just liked the song. And it kept getting played over and over and over. And at first, we were the ones calling in D.C. But then when we stopped calling, we were, you know, because we would go to practice, we couldn't call when we were practicing. But uh, at the same time, we kept hearing it on the radio. We're like, well, why is it playing on the radio? <laughs> and we were pleasantly surprised. And it, it's one of the most gratifying feelings in the world, um, hearing your song on the radio. 
especially that first time you're you're jumping for joy like five heartbeats when everybody heard this song on the radio and the whole family's jumping around that was us all over mm-hmm. all over dc so right now did it also get airplay in baltimore on 92q it did eventually yeah not at first uh we couldn't for some reason we couldn't get it up the road like that um and it's funny how the radio stations uh kind of work and it's i guess even for back then it was a who you know who's gonna make it work or is there a record company to make it not play or because there's so many levels of uh, independent promotion that people use and this song had nothing like that to it it was just djs giving it to a dj giving it to a dj giving it to a dj and if you liked it you played it so it was definitely organic yes yes the, mm. probably one of the more organic songs you'll ever hear of. Mm, and now for those of you unfamiliar with the DMV, that consists of Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia, which is the heartbeat, the bedrock of a little musical style known as Go-Go. We have Go-Go. acts such as The Godfather, Go-Go, Chuck Brown, May he Rest in Brand. Peace, EU, Rare Essence, Treble Funk, and can you tell me about you coming from Miami and then going to D.C. and hearing Go-Go for the first time? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, D.C. is such an interesting place because you would just walk up the street on a Friday night and you're going and you're hearing this music. And you're like, what is that? And I've never heard it. And the girls just start moving and the guys are outside and everybody's doing their original music. And the go-go clubs were really popular at the time. Uh, it, DC was completely dangerous and the murder capital in 1987, 88. But at the same time, they just enjoyed the environment. And I was lucky enough to have one of my good friends, uh, Theodore Cummings, as uh, one of my buddies that I met my freshman year. And he was a senior in high school at Banneker, but he also took classes at Howard. And so I would hear about the go-go clubs from him and he would go crazy because he's from DC. And so knowing somebody actually from the place and, and knowing where to go and where to listen to it and how to stay out of trouble, um, it, it was a great introduction to the music and the environment. and so different than what I heard in Miami growing up. But I just took it in and, and knew that rhythms and you just try to include it in everything you do. Mm, with Howard being a meshing of students from different areas, not only in the U.S., but internationally, were there a lot of mixing of different styles, different genres of music? Like, hey, I brought my stuff from Cali, or I brought my stuff from Houston, or I brought my Brit soul R&B from the U.K., and it was just a cross-pollinization. You, you would hear everything. I mean, you meet somebody from Detroit, the Detroit house music scene was different than the Chicago music scene, which was different than the California rap that came through. I mean, people would get these tapes and they would just play it. And then you're in a dorm full of just music. Like every day I stayed in Drew Hall my freshman year. And every day you would hear Public Enemy blaring from, you know, just from one of the rooms on the fifth floor. I'm on the second floor, but you just hear this music and, you know, BDP and everything else. And, Dana Dane and you just hear different styles and you just soak it all up because everybody's from different places. And of course I will play my Miami music and they're like, what's that? That's not going to work. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would definitely get into it with a lot of people about Miami sound, but nah, you just take it all in and mesh it all in and you practice. And I, I wasn't even thinking about 
producing and songwriting really too much. I was still write a little bit in school, but I was just trying to make sure my grades were uh, staying up to par so I could stay. Because there were people leaving after the first year. If Howard was tough, so you know, if you don't keep your grades up, they're gonna kick you out real quick. Yeah, they give you that look to the left, look to the right. Some of you are not gonna be here by spring semester. You're gonna be on academic probation, and no, you cannot join X, Y, Z. If we don't accept paper either. No, I I know people that tried to get into the fraternity, and they had a the I think the grade point average was two point five at Howard. And uh, they had a 2.48, not getting in, did not get in. 2.49, did not get in, not just not happening. Right, because you know I went to a PWI UNCG, which is right up the street from ANT, but you know hearing about how at HBCUs the fraternities and sororities they are a vital life of the school you know you have legacy members you know mom and dad joined this particular organization now you're joining and the yard for those of you that don't know is a little area where all of the organizations have their colors and symbols all separated but I repeat listen carefully if you are not a member do not (laughs) under any circumstances Go to those plots because you will get questioned really quick. And disclaimer, I am not a member. I know people who are affiliated with these organizations. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, they're definitely designated for the spots. But homecoming is something else because you have people coming back and celebrating with years of people that they've known over the years and going back to the trees and their plots. And and it's just a, a really good time. And I. The first homecoming, I had never seen anything like it. It was people coming from all over the world, the country, and going to, you know, sing songs and play. They had this big board and they played Bob Marley on on the screen. And I had never seen anything like it. And everybody was so calm and just having a good time. And uh, there's nothing like uh, homecomings at at HBCUs to to really enjoy the camaraderie of people you went to school with and enjoy the time you meet people and, and, and you celebrate, you know, being in school at a time when it was just you and those people and you celebrate every day of seeing them. And then after you leave school, you don't see them the same, but you remember what you did together during the time you were in school. So it is nothing like it. Right, because I just did an interview recently with Josh Kimber, who's an indie artist and who was my first program director at WAG. And I was talking okay. about how, man, it's been over 10 years since I've graduated. But for the Black alumni, at my alma mater, we've trying to have our own little HBCU flavor okay. to Fall Fest where you have your black alumni party and then yeah. the members of the fraternities and sororities will all get together and do their thing. And it's different when you're black and going to a predominantly white institution where yeah. you want to have that sense like you're at HBCU, but you know the grand scheme of things, it's more ahead of a class than a different world. <laughs> It's a little different, but, you know, everybody makes the choices that they make for a certain reason. And uh, it's kind of funny because a lot of people um, after graduate from the PWIs and come to Howard and they would enjoy it so much because they were like, this is the taste that I couldn't get when I was an undergrad, but now I'm going to get it and I'm going to jump in and do stuff with you guys. Can I be a part of it? And we're like, yeah, come on in. Come on right. Down. Yeah. Because um, like I said, Auntie is right up the road from my alma mater. So a lot of people from ANT would visit our school and vice versa and would try to get 
their homecoming concert tickets at a student discount because they had friends that were the A&T or 45 minutes up the road at Winston-Salem State. Now, with Howard being in close proximity to Georgetown, University of Maryland, Morgan State, Coppin State was there a lot of mixing with all of the schools at that same time, like you would go visit these Travis campuses go to games and then by you being an alpha alpha go to the probate shows for the neos yeah Yeah, actually um i think when we played i played in uh spring 89 at uh, a howard beta chapter and uh my line actually did stuff because we were all together so it was a consortium that we actually had uh sands that were at george mason i believe and georgetown as well and so we knew the guys that we were actually going to cross with at the same time and so after that we used to go to maryland we used to go to morgan state i mean we're we're familiar with all the chapters in the area so now we would go hang out and if there was any trouble between anybody at all not between the, the black fraternities but if there was anything that popped off and we were even at greek picnics at maryland if anything popped off we were all together and we would support each other. It, it could be the Q's, Kappa's, whatever, you know. When we're not messing with each other, I mean, we defend each other against everybody else. So we knew everybody from all over the region. And that's one of the beautiful things about being in D.C. You could go out to George Mason. You could go out to UVA. You could go out to Hampton. You could go out to Coppin and all these other schools in Delaware and went to Delaware State, too. So, you know, going to Philly and going to hang out in Philly. I mean, Philly had the, uh, the, the track. So, you know, the, the, the Philly relays, we would go up there as well. There's so much to do while you're at Howard that as long as you keep your grades together and do everything you want to do. I mean, New York had the Milrose game, so people were going up there too. We had a game every year, a football game, that we would go up to the Meadowlands and play a classic up there. So there's so much to do. And then you're in an organization. There's so many more people to meet. They had the Greek picnic in Philly as well. I almost forgot. But that Greek picnic in Philly, there's nothing like it, especially that first one after you, you know, go over and go up there. And, oh, man, then I had a friend who actually went over Omega. And so after he went over, I was hanging with him because that's my boy from home. Uh, and so he just did 30 years. Congratulations, Tigo, on doing that. Um, 30 years, a long time to be in the frat. And, and man, I'm just proud of everybody who's been able to hang in there and do great things all over, all over the planet. So, yeah, I'm right. really proud. Right. Definitely fraternities, sororities, great organizations, promote mentorship, academic excellence. And pretty much if you look at anybody that's been successful, they have been associated with these organizations. We just mentioned Kamala Harris. You have Stuart Scott, Donnie Hathaway, Michael Jordan, Stephen A. Smith, Terrence J., Montel Jordan, the list goes on and on of all Mm -hmm. of different people who are in these various organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, I want to throw out, I am not a member. I just know people who are affiliated. So those of you who have colors, don't test me. I am not a member. I am not a member. I repeat, I am not a member. No, we're trying to get you though. Come on over. Yeah, you, you you know which one. We'll talk about that off air. You know which one. You you know which you know which one. So I find it interesting that with Shy being a vocal group, you mentioned to me how New Edition has had an influence on you guys, and I want to hear how so because New Edition is more along the lines of the Temptations, Four Tops, where it's more choreo based, while you guys are 
straight vocals. So I want to hear how New Edition had an influence on Shy. Well, I think not just their their vocals, but their style and how they stay together. Um, as far as their movements, we realized early on that our movements weren't going to be the same. And uh, Fatima Robinson actually did some choreography on us early. And um, before we did our first homecoming show, she did that show for us. Um, but we figured out early that her style wasn't going to really mess with our style per se. And we ended up going to Frank Gatson um, later on after we had you know, become a little bit more developed in our music. And that's, by that time, we did the uh, grad nights at Disney. And then he did more of our stylings and, you know, that kind of thing. And Frank is very unique. Um, he's done in Vogue. He's done a lot of work with Beyonce. And he's very uh, individualistic about how he takes an approach. But I think we were the first guys that she, he actually worked with like that. And he took pride in making sure that we look big at all times, big on stage, our placement, our movements. It's subtle, classy, but just making sure that we would do the things that could take us to a level of new addition, that could take us to a level of the temptations and, and still wear the suits and do that. We could dress down and wear the other stuff, but still make our movements big and have the fans really you know, pay attention to what we were doing. Right. But New Edition was so big with that Heartbreak album that there's no way you weren't going to be influenced by that time. Um, if it is in love, I mean, that, that not just the way they sang the song, the harmonies and that kind of thing, and knowing how they stacked the layers with Johnny and Ralph now after all the stories come out about who did the demos and that kind of thing. I think that's really interesting over the years that Johnny did a lot of the work for that album. And it it led us to believe that he was just an add-on when he did a lot of that work. So I think that's funny over time. But uh, yeah, New Edition, no, definitely influenced when we, I was about 12, I think. Is This the End was one of the biggest songs. And it was at a church community song, and we were all singing it to the girls and everything else. There, there's nothing like the influence that they had over a lot of guys and even attempting to have a relationship with music and the girl at the same time. They, they had a big influence on that. So I'm definitely not, not going to not include that as far as being an influence on what we were going to do over time. And since Michael Bivens was the one who found Boys to Men and we actually did the song that Boys to Men sang in our talent show, I think that lends to the credence of what influence that they had over R&B at the time. Mm, and one boy group that gets talked about a lot, but not a lot of mainstream fans would know about unless you are in an area where it's predominantly Latinx, Menudo. And being from Miami, Menudo was probably played heavily on radio, on TV. And this was pre-Ricky Martin joining the group. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, social media was not a thing back then, but word of mouth has always been huge in the music world. And uh, Menudo, I mean, you heard certain girls, certain communities you would hear them and they would go to the shows I, I had no clue where these shows were but I, would, I would hear about the group and now I would realize they were very popular they, but they were also on tv there was a station at home channel 23 WLRN that did everything in Spanish I would watch soccer in Spanish just because I watch all sports and um they would be on channel 23 and I would just pay attention to what they were doing and they had the pop songs and they were doing everything that new edition was, but in Spanish. And they had the girls on lock and they had it loaded and they were just a little too early. 
just a little too early. If they had come in maybe 10 years later, they would have been the biggest thing ever. Like New Kids on the Block, how they blew up, it would have been that for them. So uh, definitely, you know, one of the influence on groups in the beginning at that time. And I'm sure New Edition probably heard about them too and kind of took some things from them as well. Right, because when I interviewed Frankie J, he was talking about how the difference between the English language and the Spanish language market at that time, it was that a lot of labels, they weren't looking to cross an English language, a Spanish language act over to the English market. Because once Selena signed her deal with EMI, they didn't believe she had the potential to do an English record right away. And sadly, her career was cut short right as she was about to make that turn. You know, it, it was right there, right on the cusp, and, and she was a phenomenal singer, too. The, the, the music that they produced was just so easy to listen to. Um, between that and Shakira, I listened to Shakira's first album. Um, it was all in Spanish. Um, I was married before, so my wife, we would listen to a lot of music in Spanish. And the thing is, during that time, you know, you didn't know Shakira was going to turn into the Shakira that it became, but you knew she could play guitar and you knew she could she, she could do everything. So to see that transformation from where she was to where she is now was pretty dramatic to see. And it, it definitely, I knew that there should have been some influence in, in using both English and Spanish at the same time. I just didn't know how it was gonna happen because I heard these songs in Miami growing up, uh, especially the rap songs, Menti Rosa, I forget the, the artist. Mel- Ace. Okay, so I heard that and I knew that was going to be one of the songs when people start in, you know, integrating the music and making sure that it will work. It was going to work, but it's just a matter of people getting out of their heads and saying, you only do this like this and you only do that. It doesn't work in music. People like what they like. And it was just great to hear that that song and, and hear it over and over. Ain't got nobody. And they used to incorporate the old samples as well. So it was just one of those things that, you know, it, over time, you knew it was going to happen. You just didn't know when. Right, because there were a lot of pre-early Latin music acts that I thought should have blown up bigger, but timing just wasn't right. I thought um, Nesto Velasquez should have yep. blown up more. He was signed to Uptown, briefly had a record called Personality. Album never came out. I thought Barrio Boys should have been bigger. You know, they were affiliated with Joe Jacket, who came out of New Kids Camp. Um, yep. I definitely thought Bobby Ross Avila should have been bigger. Uh-huh as an artist and then you also had voices of theory out of philly mm-hmm. all those all those people you just named i listened to all of them and the influence that they had on me is just their playing ability uh the, the ability to relate songs to everybody and not put a classification on it i mean that's what songwriting is all about it's not just gearing to this type of person or that type of person you just want to put your music out and have people hear it and let them judge for what they think it is and you know and I think that's what we as Shy brought to the table um it was just writing good songs and you know if I ever fall in love everybody didn't like it at first they they might have liked the acapella but then they liked the music version some didn't like the music version but they liked the acapella but you had a choice and that was the beauty of that particular song right and you mentioned earlier that it was an organic push now was this before Gasoline Alley came into the picture that was completely before Gasoline picture, but Carl was already putting a bug in their ear, like, this is going to happen. I'm pushing for it. And Carl was pushing as a producer to do stuff for that company anyway. So that's how they had the end 
to allowing us to work with them exclusively. And then they worked the deal with MCA. That's how we got the joint venture. And even, this is what people don't know, the entire time that we were out in California while we're working on the record, they were trying to make us work with other producers. And we were like, no, we got this. You know, let us keep working on it because we have songs. And we just didn't have time to work with the other producers because we were doing promotion for If I Ever Fall In Love while doing the record. So we were flying back and forth. And so that's the only reason that we got to produce the entire record. And uh, I think that's kind of what saved us. It hurt us later, but it saved us at the time for us to do what we needed to do to keep everything in the house. Right, and you mentioned earlier New Kids on the Block. What was your thoughts when they first blew? Because as we all know, New Kids was created by Maurice Starr, who discovered New Edition, just pretty much took their same formula and applied it to five kids from Dorchester who were accidentally stumbled upon by the pop audience and later hit Pater. It's funny because while at Howard, I focused on listening to KYS, um, H-U-R, Quiet Storm, and all those kind of things. But something that piqued my interest was PGC just got started and they were playing certain different songs. And I, I wasn't really listening to a lot of pop music because I was really like ingrained and listening to traditional R&B that I probably missed while I was in Miami. But one of the things that came up was New Kids on the Block. And once I heard those songs, I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, this is gonna go far. I don't know how far, I, I think it can go far but this is gonna hit big if and then i saw the visual and i was like oh this is through the roof it's gonna work right because when i listen to i will always be there before you by and quit that sounds very similar to please don't go girl yes very very similar yeah and they use those influences but you know at the same time miami pays attention <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna put that in there and we're gonna use that miami's still even though you have all the rhythms and all the, the 808 and everything else, Miami's still good for finding a melody. And one thing about good songs, it always has a good melody. And Miami always put that in their music. No doubt about it. Right, and of course, they blew up like gangbusters. And then in 1991, a multiracial R&B pop group out of Oklahoma came and took the stage and the world by storm with a little song from a little movie by New Jack City. And it was, I think, the number two song of the year of 91, Color Me Bad. So what was your yeah. thoughts on Color Me Bad and them exploding with I Want to Sex You Up? I mean, you know, you're at Howard, so you're, you're listening to all the music that comes in. And every girl on campus was singing, I want to, you know, they, you just knew the song. So once they came out, I was like, man, we, everybody's got to compete with that. <laughs> wow. And then we met them along the way the next year and they were working on, I think they were working on their second record or the first record. I can't remember what we were in our careers at that point. Uh, but the guys were really cool and uh, we just met them. And the thing about meeting other groups is like, there's a competition in our heads. At the same time, you just want everybody to do well. And because when the one group does well, it promotes another group to do well. And then you're all doing shows together and then you're competing on the shows, but then the whole show will do better like as, as we go. So that kind of thing like that, it's just like, ah. <laughs> Right, so, so there was never no like, oh, 
boys is on the bill. Um, boys is having all the success and it's kind of leaving us out and making us feel like uh, there's no room for us because they are huge mm -hmm. with Cool Air Harmony and the road. Yeah. No, no, you, there's competition, but at the same time, you just make it work. Um, as far as your song styles, all groups are still different. So because you're different, you have your lane and you stay in your lane and you, you make it work, you do your show. But as far as you're doing your best show and competing, you just gotta, you just gotta go for it. And once you go for it, the fans react and they, they will determine everything else. Now I'm going to name some four man groups and I want you to give me the difference in vocal stylings between shy and these groups. So first group, color okay. me bad. Oh my God. Color me bad. Ah. Very smooth style. I think, I think we did more, uh, minor chords, seventh chords, and that kind of thing. Um, so because of our voices, that, that's the only thing that made it different. Yeah, they did more major chord stuff. Jodeci. Jodeci. Their church background allowed for them to be strong and rooted there. We don't, we didn't, we didn't sing with the gospel background like that. Even though we, we always performed with commission, and those type of songs, commission styling was smoother than the, the gruff of the North Carolina gospel sound that they had. So that's what made us a little different than them. Portrait. Portrait. Um, Phil and uh, Irving and all those guys, their voices were, their voices real smooth. They're so smooth that they just kind of mesh into the track. And, and the way Mike would produce those songs, their voices just, I used to listen to them sing uh, other Heatwave songs and stuff like that. And it would just be so smooth, but our sound wasn't as smooth because we had Garfield's voice. And Garfield's voice was the difference in us sounding completely like them and us sounding like how we were. Um, boys to men. Boys to men. Uh, I think because Wanye, um, Wanye's voice is so strong on top I think that's what set them apart from us. We never kind of really want to have that one voice like that. Darnell would be the closest to the voice sounding like that, being on strong on top. But uh, our voice is, uh, it's very comparable actually, you know, when they had the bass as well, because Garfield could do the bass parts. But uh, our voice just meshed differently than theirs. And their, their style was really smooth but their song structures were different than us as well. And so by the time they got to the, the two album, their songs are, I guess, more pop affiliated. So they, they went in a totally left direction than, than where we went. All for one. All for one, oh my God. Uh, those guys, that strong voices. I think because they, they approached the country, the country song approach, I think that's what put them in the other lane, but their voices were actually the most similar to us. And when we were singing in concert with them, they actually would probably would match up with us guy for guy. They would match up with us the most. And one more group I want to throw out at you, Silk. Silk, oof, you talk about five guys that are just dominant and do their thing and, oh man, Lil G is so strong. Um, playing as well as uh, as well as dominating on top as singer, just power power pack. 
power pack. But Lil John, his his voice is so smooth and the falsetto. I always appreciate hearing him live shows. And and Keith, Keith just set their songs in a certain mode that when you did a show with any of them, that you knew that you were gonna get a whole show and their show is totally different than our show. So the voices would sound different. It was just more R and B based than uh mm. than more R and B pop based where, mm. where we were. Your thoughts on I feel should have had more the same amount of success as New Edition. You have I talked about this a lot. Um, I had a chance to interview three of the members of this group along with Chucky Booker, and I'm talking about Troop. Yeah. Yeah. Troop, uh I mean, you know, those guys I don't know if it was the timing, but they had the songs, but I, I don't I don't know what that was, but they should have been definitely running R&B for a long time. And they had all the songs and, and I, I don't know what happened. I really, I just don't know. Yeah, man, Troop, definitely, you know, big. Um, go to YouTube to check out my throwback interviews with Alan McNeil, Steve Russell, John John from Troop along with Chucky Booker and also big shouts to Hit Boy who is Rodney from Troop's nephew. He produced Nas's new album King's Disease which just came out yesterday which is a phenomenal record. So big shout out to Hit Boy. Keep getting the ASCAP checks. I know that's right. Um, Yeah, so Troop I actually listened to because I was coming off a trip and one of of the guy's sister that I was traveling with, his sister was seeing Dallas Austin at the time and she had a tape of Troop, All I Do Is All I Do Is Think of You. And so we listened to the entire tape on the trip back from Atlanta all the way back to Howard. And uh that thing, I mean, we listened to it over and over, and that's just one of the most phenomenal records I heard at the time. And I I I would soak in all the harmonies. I knew Shy wouldn't sound like that, but I wanted to take in how how the harmonies, how we approach the harmonies compared to that record. Mm. I did I did use a lot of that uh, in our approach, especially on the Blackface album. Uh, I used a lot of like troop inflection. <laughs> right. And how long did it take you guys to record the If Forever album? And once Comforter and the title track hit, were you surprised at how fast it took off both R&B and pop? Um, to be honest with you, was not surprised at how fast it took off. I knew the songs had everything uh, the southern element of Carl being from Louisiana and myself being from Florida and knowing what those songs were going to mean to the people in those environments, we just had to get it to the masses. And then once we got there, the songs, you know, if you're if you're writing towards certain uh, individuals, writing for the ladies, giving them a voice to to hear what a guy can write like I mean you knew it was going to work um the album was actually recorded maybe 10 weeks total tops I think um so at that point you know like I said we were in and out we were always in the studio or we were out on the road and and trying to finish I think we finished everything right before Christmas and we were filming the video for Comforter um right before the Christmas break so everything happened really, really lightning quick, fast. And after the after people saw us on Arsenio, I mean, everything just just took off. Right. And by you guys being based out of D.C. at Howard, you guys were in the backyard of BET. So I'm sure you guys had easy access to Video Soul and 
2018 summit, which Ananda Lewis, who was another HU alum, was hosting. And it was like, hey, slide this to Donnie or slide this to Sherry, slide this to Alvin Jones, see if we can get on video solo, video vibrations. It, it was weird because actually when we went on video so we would never have Donnie. Like, I think we only had Donnie once. And Donnie, like, okay, here, here's the bad door secret. PGC is the one that developed the song. So because we didn't go through Donnie at, I think he was at KYS at the time, because we didn't go through Donnie, there was some animosity. It was never discussed, but you could feel it. And it's like, you know, if we had actually had a conversation that could have been like ironed out, but that's part of the politics of radio stations playing the groups against another radio station and maybe them not knowing, you know, the politics of like, we have nothing to do with this, but this is how our song broke. So it has nothing personal to do, but you know, we're going to be on video. So can we talk about it? Right, and definitely definitely. big shout out to Donnie Simpson, who was just named along with Sway Breakfast Club into the Radio Hall of Fame class of 2020. Go to YouTube and also the podcast to listen to my archival interview with Mr. Green Eyes himself. Now, during this time, you guys were out, Boys to Men was out, but there was a little phenomenon going down in O-Town with a person who is infamous now. Um, Lou Perlman, um, he decided to take the vocal stylings of boys with the look of new kids and put together a group known as Backstreet Boys. And early on in their careers, they would use your records as their go-to standards for their beginnings. So what was that like seeing Backstreet Boys early stages and then them using your songs as their beginning pieces? Um... I think pretty much, I mean, I feel like anybody that's going to use our music and sing our music, they're paying homage to our style. And and knowing that the song was that big, I, I mean, I wasn't really surprised that they would use that in their shows and that kind of thing. But we never really met them like that. So it wasn't anything personal or that we could take away from it. But, you know, hey, I mean, our song was all over the world. So why not? Why wouldn't anybody use our music and just sing it and, and go for it with it and, and kind of, you know, take off from there? I mean, that's what was going to happen. And the music industry, you know, is a very, very interesting kind of place where there was a domination of a lot of Black groups at the time. And so not everybody was a fan of that. You know, not everybody wanted to see a, a Black group poster in their child's room. Josie! I mean, we live we live in a world where you know everybody doesn't like everybody so you know they wanted to make those faces a little bit more familiar and and go in a different direction and that's what the start of that looked like with backstreet and nsync and no 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 uh there's nothing negative i have to say about them but that's just where the cards lay at the time and they were going to make money no matter what. And Lil Perman was very smart for doing it, actually. So. Right. And when I interviewed Jeff from 98 Degrees, he mentioned how they were influenced by you all in their early stages. Because if you listen to their debut album on Motown, it was straight up R&B because, you know, Andre oh, Harrell yeah. was head of Motown at yeah. the time. And they had Robin Thicke do some songs on there, Montel Jordan. I think Kenny Green from Intro had did a song with oh, on that terrific. album. Yeah. Let me tell you, Kenny Green, I mean, that guy, I mean, rest may he rest in peace. Goodness gracious, that guy, he could sing through a building, out the building, over the building, through the building, just a phenomenal voice. And meeting them um, on the road, um, 
the whole group. I, that's one of my favorite experiences because meeting intro, they were all cool. Every every single member, they were cool. We would just hang out, just talk. And, we, and most of the time when you're talking to groups, you talk about music. And we would just have late night conversations. And I remember meeting them because I think we were on the Budweiser tour. Budweiser Superfest. Budweiser Superfest. And we, we just met them. We would just talk. We were just talking in the back and everybody else would be performing. We analyze everybody else's show and we would just talk about music. And that's what all the groups would do. Even Silk, I mean, I talk to all those guys all the time. We're there sitting there and we're listening to music about H-Town and, and big, it was Big G. I was sitting in the room with him. We would just listen to Dino's voice and Dino's gone too. But that, it was just a phenomenal time where you could listen to everybody else and enjoy their music. And there's there's no way we can get that back, but I hope it can be recreated to where the groups can do that again. Mm. And I, I think there are a few groups coming out now where I think it can head that direction. But uh, man, it was a special time. The 90s was a special time in music. Yeah, intros, first two albums, the self-titled debut, and the New Life album, No Skips, Kenny Green was vocally up there in terms of greatness songwriting great because you got to think about it intro was already on doing work behind the scenes with shine head mary j and working with eddie f and david jam hall out of the untouchables camp so by the time their debut came out it was highly anticipated because i just did an interview recently with kevin woodley who was a and r over at atlantic with uh when intro was signed and mm-hmm. i was telling him that man their albums no skips. And then he finally revealed to me what I had been wondering for years. Did intro do Ain't Nothing Wrong for Real Seduction that was signed to Atlantic? And he said they did. Oh, for real? I didn't know that. Because if you listen to that record and then I think maybe Let Me Be The One or Love Thing, very yeah. similar. Very similar. And yeah, I think Real Seduction, they were from New Orleans, I think. They, they were, and we met them out here, and we met them early on before they came out, and those cats, they're good, too. Right? Yeah, I thought I thought that they were dope. I thought that um, Boys of Paradise was dope, too. They were signed to Rhythm Safari, which I think was Ice-T's label, and they had remade Shining Star by the Manhattans, and they had a record called Runaround. I thought that they were dope. So if ever, huge. Comforter, huge. Baby, I'm yours. Huge. And then it's time to go back in the studio. Before we we get to the Black Fix album, you guys Mm -hmm. go overseas to the UK to tour. And you guys do a little show, which was the American equivalent, the UK equivalent, I should say, to American Bandstand. And that was Top of the Pops. So what was it like going over there and then seeing the rise of the UK groups like Take That, Eternal, E-17? I think uh, Take That was the biggest group when we went over. And I think we did the award show. So coming from where we just left and and not having that scene or not being a part of the American scene to do award shows was a, a huge accomplishment for us because we had never seen anything like it. And all of a sudden we're thrust on stage with all these groups that are huge. And, and anybody who's been to the UK, they love their music. So there were so many fans, so many groups, so many back behind the scenes. And we were just part of this big entity. And I don't even know if we knew 
what we were doing at the time, <laughs> to be honest with you, but we just knew the song was doing well. So we were just like, okay, let's go on stage and sing this song we always sing and, and make sure that we sing it to the best of our abilities, not knowing how big these other groups are because you still had, uh, um, I think, uh, all these other groups and uh, stars and, and we, we just didn't even know that it, it could be that big at that point because it was way early on and we're still traveling. I think it was November, right before Thanksgiving and between doing those shows in the UK and coming back and doing the Bayou Classic was one, one of the great experiences that we've ever had because we sang with Grambling's band. Um, they played If I Ever and we sang with them and we're all tired because we're off a plane coming from Europe <laughs> and we're still trying to make it make it work and oh man, all of that. But going over there and having them have a full appreciation for soul music, for just bands. Uh, I think it was a, could I lie to you? Would I lie to you? Charles and Charles, Eddie. Charles and Eddie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the big songs that were over there when we went over there. But to be like put in that above the top class and people loving our music in Europe, it was completely weird, but loving at the same time. Um, and so that that gave us more confidence to kind of go back in the studio and, and put more songs together that have that soul type of feel. So when we come out again, then the whole world could really feel what we wanted to get across. Right, because when I interviewed KG from the UK R&B pop group Eminate, they were out in the mid-90s, he had mentioned how a lot of the UK acts, like you stated, revere American R&B and just pretty yeah. much just take their own cultural spin and add it. Because if you look at Sam Smith, Adele, oh. Craig David, yeah. anybody that's been huge from the UK in the past three to four decades have all just took American R&B and pop and just put the UK spin on it. Well, the thing is, they play this stations over there that where they play nothing but Motown. I mean, that's their staple. They don't even go to like the current stuff. It's mostly Motown, and they blend the other stuff in there. But their go-to is to you know Temptation, dun, 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 dun. and and they just keep that in their in their in their rotation. So when you're listening to that over and over, that's how you have Sam Smith singing the way he's singing, Adele singing the way she's singing because it's ingrained in them to listen to that style of music and it, how it affects their audience is a little different than how it affects here. Right. And the nineties were not only a good time for the fellas, but it was also a good time for the ladies as well. Female R&B groups were just as top heavy as the guys, I SWV, TLC, M Vogue, Jade, the list goes on to all of all the girl groups that came on. out during that time. So do you do any tours with TLC, SWV, Jade, Invo? Uh, not TLC because I think they finished before we got back, before we came out. But we would see Jade on the road doing promotion with them. We we were everywhere with them. Every time we would, we would see Jade everywhere. And their songs, we saw them kind of bubbling up. Our song was out, their songs were bubbling. And then we got to the point where Don't Walk Away got big and you know they got big. And um, between them, and then we're on the road with SWV. So we we lived with them pretty much the entire time um, being on the Superfest. So we got to be good friends with them along the way and and, and Coco and, and Taj and Lily and th those ladies that, Oh man, I love them. Love them. Great music, and they're they're really a lot of fun too. Mm, and I forgot to mention Escape. 
Escape, yeah, yeah. We met Escape before they came out. So I met Candy, I think we were in a club in Atlanta and they weren't out yet, but we met her and I could tell that they they had something going on. They they were gonna work it. Mm, and that they did. And I believe you guys have somewhat of a connection with a group out of New Jersey, which was known for singing in the bathroom in a little movie that is beloved in the African-American community called <laughs> Lean On Me. So tell me the association between Shy and Riff. The association was Riff was actually on tour with Boys and Men and Jodeci right before we came out in 91. And Darnell's father was Riff's manager. So we used to have insides of like how to how to sing on stage, how to react on stage, how to be on stage, and just kind of following them around. I didn't get a chance to follow them around as, as much as the other guys. But at the same time, I would pay attention to how they were doing and, and how they were singing. And they were all strong singers. I mean, Kenny, oh, man, those, those guys, they could all sing. They could all flow. Love yeah, them. yeah, I really love My Heart Was Failing Me, White Man Can't Jump, and the Marlon Mall remix to Every Time My Heart Beats, which yeah. I thought was dope. And you mentioned uh, Commission earlier, and when I interviewed Mitchell Jones, and mm -hmm. I was telling him about how groups like yourself, Voice Men, Jodeci, Intro, was influenced by his group Damn. and along with like the whining. So tell me, what do you think the gospel influence has so heavy on a lot of you guys uh the intricacies of their harmonies i mean the way uh it was it strange lamb was one of the ones that we used to study all the time from commission i can't be seen strange lamb. just the way the harmonies would kind of change we knew we couldn't sing just like that for for a pop world but at the same time how can we have that influence in a song like comforter in the song other songs that we do how can we have that that influence and i think uh, I hate to say it, but sexual has some of those harmonies in them as well, because we can play those layers and kind of influence and bring it into secular music. And those influences, yeah, they went a long way. And we used to practice them all the time. And then, uh, Lord, I come. I mean, that, that was an homage to how we listened to Commission and the Winers all the time. So we used to sing that as a warm-up all the time. And there were actually two verses, but we used to cut it because we just couldn't get past a certain point sometimes. And, um, and uh, take six. Oh, man, I was pledging when take six came out. So I used to hear it all the time, but I really didn't understand, like, the intricacies of it. Spread love. <laughs> I was so busy. But once I got off the line and I heard just the – how you used to play off each other. And, and of course there's a McKnight brother in there too. And then meeting Brian, right when we got, you know, into, into the industry, I mean, Brian's so talented, but his brothers were just as talented as well. So you could tell where all that influence came from and just the love of music and man, that, that style, we wanted to take from it, but we knew we couldn't do all the parts to it all the time, but we wanted to bring what we could to a four-man group and and kind of bring it to uh, bring it to shine and see what happens. Right, because I definitely felt had the gospel world would have not been so afraid to dive more into R and B. I think Commission would have been huge 
R&B wise because listening to Love is the Way, which was produced by Chucky Booker, Mitchell, Sean, I can see where Sean from Boys to Men sounds very similar to him. Yeah, very, very similar. Um, and Sean has always been silky smooth with his voice and that kind of thing. Um, before I forget, I was going to say, because during that time, Baby I'm Yours, they wanted the remix. And because you're talking about Take Six, I want to talk about um, just the way the harmonies laid out for yours, because that's what we created while we're at grad night doing a three week kind of thing for every weekend for the high school graduates. They wanted a remix for yours and yours was going to come out a lot like If I Ever Fall in Love came out because Paco was in Orlando. So we took it to him after we finished the yours recording and it was on the radio. It was about to blow up again. <laughs> the record company ceased and desist on it. They shut it down because they didn't really know what to do with it. And again, we're kind of a little ahead of our time because we're doing a remix to a song that they hadn't really pushed yet. But at the same time, we had a whole different version of a song that could have come out. It was all acapella but they didn't know what to do with it at the time. And this is uh, 93. And so the way we did that song was Garfield sang the bass, boom, boom, boom. He sang it all the way down, straight down. And then we did the uh, the guitar parts on top of that. And, uh, kind of a string string harmony guitar parts. And we did, we did all that second. And the way we laid that song out is, is one of the, it was one of my greatest joys of doing music, I think, because the, all of it came together in three days and doing the whole song in the studio and finishing and then having the excitement of it get to the radio station and playing on the radio station, having the Orlando fans react to it. Uh, it kind of cut our, um, our momentum a little bit to have them stop it. But at the same time, it, it let us know just how powerful the acapella thing, putting the harmonies together to make it work and putting the four of us in a room and, and just making it work. Right. And then I think the big um, misconception about a lot of R&B groups is that we're only R&B only, but you guys listen to rap as well. So did you guys do any tours of like rap acts as well? And when you did cross paths with like Wu-Tang or whoever, they knew who you guys were? They knew who we were and we would just try to hang out. I, I don't think it was more more than that. We weren't trying to be on the shows with them, but we enjoy going to a root show and just hanging out and, and hanging out with Black Thought and, and just seeing the boys go go off. I mean, they were just going on. And and that's what music was. You just go support everybody. You go to a show, you go go hang out and just talk. And after that, I didn't do the other stuff, but hey, I, I could definitely go definitely go hang out and, and see what it's all about because it's gonna influence what music you create next. And I think that helped us get to produce a 95, produce uh, different records for the Blackface record. I don't think we produced those records without knowing what the streets were saying as well. And because we come from different places where urban, urban societies from Boston, outside of New Jersey, with influences of New York, uh, Miami, and Louisiana, we had all of that coming from DC as well. We wanted to express all of what we knew about black culture in our music. And again, I think it was a little too early to really go there because the record companies didn't want to go there. 
they couldn't go there with us because they thought we would be offensive. It wasn't meant to be offensive at all. It's just a matter of we know what our culture is and we know what we want to expose. And if you allow us to go down that path, we can have success together. But they weren't re willing, really willing to go that route with us. Right. And, and that's what really hurt us with the blackface record. Right. And then as you and I both know, the way that the industry works, it's very risk averse. And so when you try to do something that's a little bit against the grain and it's not going to be a surefire moneymaker, then they're not going to go for it, which brings to my point where now it's great where artists can just go directly to the consumer, not yeah. really have a label to say, oh, we need a song like this. Oh, we need an album like this. I'm going to make it my way. I'm going to do what I want, when I want it, how I want it. Go directly to the consumer and let the fans decide. Yeah, if you, if you have the support to do it, then you're, you're going to be successful in today's world. When you release your songs, it's kind of like the consumer picks what they like the most. And you don't have to worry about picking the wrong single or this or that. They pick what they like. And all you have to do is have the support system and say, okay, I want to do this. I want to be able to do the videos for this. I want to be able to, you know, do it. But back then we were totally dependent on the record company to support this, do this type of record. Can we do this type of video? Do we have a budget for this? And then everybody's creating things from their own budgets and what they can do and what relationships they have can go a long way too because I scratch your back, they scratch your back. And, that, and it was like that back then, but if you didn't have the budget, you couldn't really scratch the same way back in the early 90s. So that that held us back a little bit too because we had to wait for decisions. Right. I mean, we were supposed to be on the Friday soundtrack. We were pushing for it to be on the Friday soundtrack, to be one of the groups on the Friday The record company says no. Why? You know, how is it going to hurt you from your group to be on a soundtrack of of a culture, of a movie that's going to be a cultural icon in the future? Right. It didn't make any sense. And that led to the frustration of why Shy is, you know, how can we just do music the same way? We don't want to do 50 records of If I Ever Fall In Love. We're not built that way. Um, we could do one record like that, but not 50 of them doesn't, doesn't make sense. So why not be on the Friday soundtrack? And, but, you know, we're fortunate enough to be on Beverly Hills Cop 3, where a place where you, where you belong ended up being on. And uh, we were able to create that. And Carl, Carl and Trey built a great foundation. And we were able to lay the vocals on top. And that ended up being one of our bigger songs. And But, you know, you still feel held back because you're like, I want to be able to do more like this all the time. Mm -hmm. And we know we can do it. But, you know, you're constantly being told and you can't do this and you have to be ready to do that. And if you do this for me, then I can do that for you. So it's, it's hard to play that game all the time. Right. And if I ever, it was number one R&B, number two pop, never got to number one on the pop trots because of a ditty by the late, great Whitney Houston on a little movie soundtrack called The Bodyguard. Which was a great song. So I can't. I can't be mad at that. <laughs> and you can't be mad at Dolly Parton either because she's still getting checks. She's still getting checks to the day. And, and, and she loves Black Lives Matter too. So, hey. <laughs> yeah, I visited her neck of the woods last year in Tennessee. I was surprised at how welcoming it was. And that I wasn't met with a you lost boy. 
tone. <laughs> we don't nah. like you around here, but uh, very beautiful. But um, we're mentioning of ASCAP checks. I was mentioning to you how in the Rough Riders Chronicles, Swiss Beats thought that his checks were all dummy checks until somebody from ASCAP called him and said, how does it feel to be rich? And Swiss went back, went to, I think, the shoebox of the drawer where he put those checks, opened them uh-huh. up, and realized they had seven hundred thousand dollars in ASCAP checks lying around. Um, I, I I can't even believe that story because one of the things that we all fight for is publishing, and the way we set it up was that two of us would be ASCAP and two of us would be BMI, and so that way we can share the wealth in both both uh, songwriting camps, and uh, those things right there go on forever, and the fact that some people still don't know that these these items exist in music is there's so many jobs that exist in the music world and entertainment just in, in general like you don't have to be the artist to do everything you be a songwriter producer working in background scenes working in studios i mean there's so many levels of what we can do in the industry and it's just not pushed unless you go to full sale or uh, you know schools that have the information about it and everybody wants to be on TV and that kind of thing, but you don't have to. And nobody knows that until you actually run across people who do different things. And I never ran across it until I moved to LA. So just just knowing that these are available and knowing that these checks are available, like we really have to educate our youth to what is available and what jobs are available, what checks are available. And songwriting is key. Yep, and don't sign away your publishing. Write a good Christmas record, because if you're able to do that, look at Mariah Carey. She's still eating off of All I Want for Christmas is You. Now talk about the impact, not only of Prince musically, but of mm-hmm. what he's done to make it more favorable for the artist and being able to say, hey, I want to own my masters. I want to put out stuff my way, myself. And he was doing it in the mid-90s with the MPG website. Yeah, he, um, Prince was instrumental in asking people or telling artists along the way. He would send messages to people. He always sent messages to us, like, hey, do you guys own your master? He would do it all the time through our bodyguard at the time, Big Coco, was actually working for him personally as well. So we would always get the messages. And just by him showing a model of how to do um, independent music and going that route but of course like you said you got to have the budget to do the things that he was doing and distribute and do all that stuff i don't know if he knew it would work but he was like i'm gonna try though and i'm gonna make sure that you know he still had the ace in the hole i can always perform i could play this guitar on stage and bring a band and people will show up um everybody isn't fortunate enough to be able to do that but for him, he definitely showed you the way to say, okay, demand your best, demand your masters, demand this, make sure you have your publishing, make sure you, you know, own the rights to be on stage, make sure that YouTube is paying you, make sure that all these other people are paying you when you do your live recordings, make sure you keep it to yourself and distribute it yourself. And he definitely showed different routes of how you can do it. Right, and Michael was big on that too, even though not a lot of people kind of knew about it. He was very astute in how the business worked. I mean, he brought the oh, Beatles catalog. Michael's, Michael's a bad cat. He's a bad cat, and he knew. And he knew 
because they would probably try to play him against his brothers and that kind of thing. And that's another thing. I mean, everybody's going to try to play the group against, you know, this person's the lead singer, this person's doing this. Play, you know, you, you got to stick together and be on one accord because it, if you're not, I mean, people will pick you apart just, just because everybody wants to make a certain type of money. And they, they always lead you into, well, you can make this money if you do this or if you do X, Y, Z. But we were always up the camp. We came from Howard, so let's make this money together. And there's a sense of loyalty that we always had. But you, you have to keep checking in with the group members and make sure everybody's on the same page. And sometimes it's hard to stay on that same page. As you grow older, you get families and that kind of thing. Different pressures come up along the way. So it's right. hard to stay on that one accord all right. the time. Right. And how do you keep that when you have certain members of the group that's doing the bulk of the writing and producing while the others are just singing? And then when they see those ASCAP of being my checks and say, hey, how come we're only getting this, but you're getting this? And then you have to say, hey, don't get mad at me for doing the bulk of the writing, bulk of the producing, because as we saw with the Go-Go's doc on Showtime, yeah. Two of the members were the primary writers, so they were getting bigger shares of the money, while the yeah. others were just getting the peanuts. And then once Belinda Carlisle went solo, the same members that were the primary writers of the Go-Go's got put on to work on her solo stuff. So yeah. how do you kind of keep that group together when the green starts getting involved and somebody's yeah. getting more than the other? It's, it's very tricky. Um, there will be jealousy involved. But at the same time, I think they're entities where everybody serves a purpose and they're doing what they're best at. One of the good things about Garfield, he can act as well. So there are different ways of you making money that you go into different fields. You know, you're doing acting classes, you know, auditions, doing shows. Darnell was very good at establishing relationships with producers and that kind of thing. So he actually is the one that established a relationship with Paul Brown that allowed us to do Warner Brothers Jazz, where we were able to work with Kirk Whalum, Boney James, um, Rick Braun, and Kirk, you know, and, uh, and Bob James as well. I mean, so you can't look at it as just, you know, I'm not getting a check this way, but how can we get more checks in the future by our relationships that we have with people in an industry who will want to work with us in the future because they like us. That's what the whole industry is about. Do you like do we like shy? Do we like them? Do we want to work with them? Are they fun to work with? That kind of thing. And that's how you work long term. But yeah. if you're not likable, if you're not, people don't want to be around you, they're not going to give you that phone call and say, hey, can you do such and such or work with such and such? And when you work on songs, you don't work about, you don't talk about money. You just work on the songs and the music. And then you just try to do the best material available and put it out and then see what happens. Only James is one of the most lovable songs that we've ever done we didn't write it but those guys made money and we got to sing it but our songs are playing at the airport every airport in the country they were playing those warner brothers jazz songs so people will call me every so often be like i just heard your song at the airport that's phenomenal how'd you do that well, that was the warner brothers connection that you know paul brown worked on this through this cycle and that relationship that darnell had with him even though I had a relationship with Paul Brown too, Darnell had a different relationship with Paul Brown that allowed him to call him later on and say, hey, I want you to do this. And actually Paul wanted Darnell to do a solo project. And Darnell was like, no, I don't want to do a solo project, but I can bring in the group and we could work on this together. Mm -hmm. So that was always his angle of, of working and not causing more animosity along the way. Right, so be professional, 
don't burn bridges and don't pull a Lauren Hill or Erica Badu and show up two to three hours late performing on concert because that's the quickest way to burn a bridge. That's the quickest way to burn a bridge. You can't show up late. Even in Europe, I mean, oh man, they burn so many bridges in Europe. Europe would book a lot of acts to do shows. We did a lot of shows between 2003 and 2011 in Germany. And uh, they would give you half the money up front. Do you know how many artists would take the money half up front and not show up? Because that money would meant that I don't have to pay it back. I'm just gonna take this advance. I really don't wanna get on the plane. I really don't know if the show in Germany is for real or not, but I don't have to go because now I have the money. And people, the Germany promoters were burnt and they would ask us every time, are you sure you're gonna show up? And you know, I have the artists, I have this and that, are you gonna show up? I wanted to show up just because I wanted to go over to Europe and have a good time and, and be in a different audience where they love my music. You know, why not show up? But other acts didn't always see it like that. And so that made it hard for people to actually, you know, get shows after a while. Right. And that's where if you're a novice promoter like that, call up Al Heyman. <laughs> Al Heyman will get you right. And plus he'll send you three bodyguards to dangle somebody out of a window. Man, I used to uh, I used to make sure that, you know, he'll tighten you up. Definitely tighten you up, but but he'll give you the opportunity to shine on the super fast too. So don't don't bite the hand that feeds you. So you know, no, nope, because they could shortchange you when in that box office counting the receipts. Like, hmm, we got this much money. I'm gonna slide this here. I'm gonna slide that there. I'm gonna slide this here. Now, also at the same time, the West Coast was on fire with everything that was coming out of Death Row with Dre and Snoop, yeah. and then we know once Suge came in, he just kind of brought the street to the boardroom, meaning street way of handling things. And then also at this time, we see Master P and his rise with No Limit, and his deal with priority is still being talked about to this day where he got 80-20 split, where he kept 80% of the profit, the label gets 20, yeah. and plus, Whenever he put out anything straight to video or DVD, he got to keep most of the profits because he, yeah, he made them about it, funded it himself, sold it at yeah. $10 a tape, sold two, mil sold 2 million copies, and he kept all of that. So tell me about the impact of Death Row and No Limit. Well, the way they had their plan, they were all in-house. I mean, all, all the products were, they did all the work. They had all the funding. They had, and when you have the budget, I mean, that's pretty much the ball game right there. You're not asking the label. They got away from the label model per se and asking somebody else to approve your work. They did all the work and presented it to the label like, here, this is what it is, put it out. And that's a whole different way of approaching the system. And also they knew they, they had their ear to what people in the streets wanted. So once they produced that music, I mean, they would sample it way beforehand so they already knew what the what what the public wanted and once it got out of course everybody was buying it and and because they already heard what it was anyway so you know it was kind of a built-in entity where it was going to work and so again you're, you're only fortunate enough to be with those entities that have the budget or the setup to do it and they had it now everybody else who tried that a lot of people didn't make it Mm. It wasn't going to work because they just didn't have the people in place. They didn't have the promoters in place. They didn't have 
everything set up. It's, it's a hard business. It's a really hard business right. to, to do and to, to finish the job. Like you can have the best product in the world, but if you don't finish the job promotion wise or have it set up in certain places, it's not going to work. Mm-mm. So, you know, you, you have to have these things in place. And when you know when it's go time, it's go time. Right. And there was this young man who went to Howard briefly and became A&R for the late Andre Harrell at Uptown. And once he got unceremoniously fired from Uptown, started a little label called Bad Boy. I'm talking about Mr. Take That, Take That, Let's Get It, Sean Diddy Combs. So did you ever see him on campus at the time when you were at Howard, or were you there when he brought Biggie to the Howard homecoming when he did Party and BS? All of of that. Um, Puff at the time, did a lot of stuff on campus. He had most of the homecoming parties locked down, um, but actually one of his one of his main hustles was when people needed to get rides home from school uh, to go to the airports and this thing. He had a shuttle service that he did for campus. So there are other hustles within the bigger hustle. So when everybody knew he went to New York to go back and work with the record company, we all knew oh, that's gonna work because he's gonna make it work. And that's just, it was in his blood to, to be a part of the system, but I never thought it would get to the point where Bad Boy went and the label and the artists and just him being the, the world. He, he's doing it all, he's doing it all. Did I see that point? No, I didn't, I didn't see that, but not surprised, not really, no. Because his hustle mentality was always there. And you know, you saw it on, on campus. It's kinda of like Kamala Harris. You you saw something there, but you just didn't know how it was gonna fester in the future. And you see where it's going now. She's about to be vice president of the United States. So that's what Puffy was at the time on campus. So when it got to Bad Boy, like and he brought back people from Howard that he worked with, he brought the producers and everybody else and had people working with them that he trusted from Howard. So at that point, you know, you got Howard people working with you. It's going to work. Right. And then another person from Howard who nobody saw being the phenomenon that he's become now in the acting world, Mr. Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> Funny story, actually. My, my wife actually went on a trip with him to Ghana. And uh, he wasn't supposed to go on the trip, but she encouraged him to go. And they ended up going on this flight over there. She booked his flight and everything and, and got him over there. So there's a picture that she has of him, like there's some unique type of trees in, in the country. And, uh, and Chad is in the picture and he's the only one headshot, everything else. And to see these photos now compared to him being T'Challa and, and the characters from Black Panther, you know, they haven't really seen each other over time, but to have those pictures and see where he's gone from that point. Definitely had vision, focus, and he's brought back the Howard uh, Fine Arts Program too. It's gonna be his own school again and, and do his own thing like it was when we were there back in the in the early eight, late, late 80s, early 90s. So it's gonna be his own entity again. And all of that's because of him giving back to the school. Dope. Now I want you to talk about the impact that these guys have had on production Cal West I'll be sure and then Teddy Riley oh man well the Teddy story that we have is that we used to go down there and bug Teddy 
to be a part of his label. Future Studios, Virginia Beach, right? Yeah, yeah. we used to go down there every weekend before, before Chai took off, before the summer of that, that whole winter when I'm studying to graduate from college and everything else, we would go to Virginia Beach and hang out with Teddy. And we met um, uh, producers, Chris and Lenny, uh, Chris Harris, phenomenal guy who's helped me with my studios over the years. And, and uh, they gave us tracks and we met with uh, uh, a whole bunch of other producers at the studio as well. And so, you know, Teddy, we were bugging, but his influence over the industry, the hip hop, the new Jack Swing. I mean, if you listen to Carl produce a lot of the music, there's a cross section between him doing Babyface and Teddy. So he would take the sounds of Teddy, melodies of Babyface, and that pretty much would mesh into Carl's world of production. Um, so you can see the influence on a lot of the records that we produce um, on the first two records. Mm -hmm. um, Kyle West, I mean, that I'll Be Sure record, again, that was early college for me. But at the same time, just to hear that sound and the influence, we knew certain songs, how it was gonna work. And just to hear the ladies love, the layers of it, the songs. One of the first performers we actually performed with was Albie Shore um, when we came back to campus. So we did the Howard Homecoming show. And then the next night we did a show with Albie Shore. And he was very professional. And he would always, he always tried to show us the ropes. He always tried to show the young cats how to do, how to work with the mics. And a lot of the stuff that the old cats wouldn't show us, Albie did. And so that's why he's always been successful in the industry and, and his layering styles and Kyle, Kyle West is underrated to this day. Um, his sounds, how he guides every, I mean, he sets everything up layer wise and music. He sets it up to where you're going to understand and, and feel the impact of the emotion, the climax, and then the aftermath and everything else. He sets up a song. And if you study his style, you would definitely be able to have a successful song. Right, and we definitely got to mention Al B because he brought Devontae in and Devontae got some early production work on the Private Times, the whole nine album and the Sexy Versus album. And Devontae's bad boy production-wise too. You, you, can, you can hear everything that Kyle West gave him, but then Devontae took it to a whole new level. His level of playing in addition to the way he brought instrumentation. I mean, Devontae's so wild that a lot of people wouldn't incorporate wild guitar sounds, electric guitar at the time. I think Timbaland did more of that later on, but it's because of Devante that that sound was included in black music. Most people, did, they stayed away from electric guitar sounds. They always went acoustic. They always went to the softer sound, not knowing what electric guitar could sound like if you manipulate the sounds and, and make it work. So I've always admired Devante's style. Um, Definitely, definitely had big, big, big influence. And I love the reaction that people have to his music as well, because they love the grit, the griminess, and just the way he approached it. But the song he, one of my favorites he's ever done was the song he did with Montel Jordan, uh, What's On Tonight? Mm -hmm. I mean, the way he laid it out with the piano and it was nice and gentle. And he played off of Montel, kind of, it gave Montel a different angle than what we knew from before. So I always enjoyed that song when I listened to it. 
your thoughts on everything that was coming out of Atlanta, you know, when crisscross exploded with totally crossed out and jumped, they were huge. Escape was huge, launched JD and so so death. Then you had everything coming out of the organized noise camp with Rico Wade, Ray Murray, Sleepy Brown, Outcast, Giddy Mob, then later Ludacris, T.I. And did you expect Atlanta to be the epicenter of urban music? Or did you think that it would be a tough sell seeing how biased still music was at the time with things coming out of the South? No, quietly, I kind of knew Atlanta had something. So we used to go do showcases there. And uh, there was a young act called Kilo. And I had cousins that live in Atlanta, so I would know a lot of the underground artists, or I would at least be able to hear what was going on. In fact, the first time I heard Lottie Dottie was actually in Atlanta through my cousin, Mick Jr. And you know, they always got the stuff first. They always got to it. You know, V103 was what it was. But over time, um, Criss Cross, I mean, when we're doing the top of the pops in the UK, crisscross is there <laughs> so we're in the middle of all of that plus jump jump is at the top of the charts and doing all that and organized noise and uh, one of our one of our people that were around us michael blue williams actually became manager for outcast so he was one of the first ones to let us know that he was managing outcast and would send us music and let us know that they were on the up and up and heard goody mob and heard CeeLo early um Who's knocking through the window? Ah, we heard all that early. So nothing surprised us about Atlanta and the scene. And again, I heard Dallas Austin do the troop thing early because I was flowing through Atlanta to go back to Howard. So we already knew Dallas. Dallas had his scene. Organized Noise was there. Wasn't surprised about TLC after that. Um, I mean, the underground Atlanta still to this day, I mean, they have an underground that's you know quite comparable to Miami. Miami has this underground scene, Atlanta, and then they would switch and flip-flop and and people would go different places and just make it work. Yeah, we mentioned Atlanta and Miami. I can't be remiss if we don't mention this man who, along with Luke, laid the groundwork for the Southern hip-hop movement, and that is Dre Prince and Rap-A-Lot Records out of Houston, Texas. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> that, that whole time period and, and Scarface and that, Again, another company that set up their own way, did what they wanted to do, made sure that they worked and kept it regional, which means they built the love. They built a fence around that and it was their love. And they actually had New Orleans at the time. And I think they were able to show New Orleans what to do. And then New Orleans got on the map their way later on. And then, you know, if it wasn't for that company at that time of their period, then I don't think New Orleans gets like that. I don't, I'm not sure if it, Atlanta does the same thing. I'm not sure exactly how that works. And it helped that, you know, Jermaine Dupree actually was with the company in Columbia that believed in him to allow them to do what they were doing. That meant they could get to the funds to do what they were going to do as well. And then ushering in Usher and that kind of thing. So when you have these artists come through there, Beyonce is coming through Houston and going through there, because when they're doing the first two albums, it's not the same as when what happens later in their career for Destiny's Child. Mm, and then I think another musical region doesn't get enough mention in the hip-hop scene, and that's Memphis with 3-6 Mafia, 8-Ball, MJG. Because we all know Memphis for the roots of R&B and rock and roll with Sun Records, Stax Records, the whole nine. But Memphis 
plays plays a big part in hip hop. I mean, Three Six Mafia won the Oscar for Hustle and Flow. Yeah, yeah, Hustle and Flow just opened up everything as far as what people knew. But before that, the underground scene, Memphis would influence the entire South, um, Arkansas would get down to Miami, uh, have the influence, but then you could take the sounds and that created a whole different section of music for a, a lot of the, the approach of the rap. Um, so, and then Juicy J blowing up. I mean, that just took it to a whole new level where he was relatable. People got to understand who he was and, you know, for pop people to understand 3-6 Mafia through that. I mean, I mean, one of my favorite songs to this day is Stay Fly. I mean, all that. <laughs> fly, right. fly, 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 fly. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, my wife and I, we went to Memphis last year and we were coming out of the Civil Rights Museum and I saw the arcade restaurant. I told my wife, this is where 3-6 Mafia did the Tether Club Up video at. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was super hyped about that, and then we got a chance to go to Al Green's church, and he was there preaching. Like he was there, and I was trying my hardest not to fan out in the church because <laughs> I mean that is Al Green, the, Green. the 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 man who I listen to on the radio and on records. I'm yeah. three feet away from the man, and his voice yeah. still clean and as clear as a bell. Now going back down to Miami, we mm-hmm. mentioned Loot Records. But there was another company out of Miami that came out and just took over. And that is Slip and Slide, where you had acts wow. like Trick Daddy. You had Trina. I think yeah. JT Money was signed to yeah. Slip and Slide. And then yeah. to Luke Records at this time was a young guy who is known as Mr. 305 now, but we know him as Pitbull. So yeah. tell me about Slip and Slide and then seeing the rise of Pitbull and also DJ Khaled. The thing I appreciate about Slip and Slide is that they always included the inner city in their workings. They included the rivalry between the Sobel of Miami Northwestern and Miami Jackson. They included that in their videos, the bands, everything else. So this sound right here brought bands playing music back to high school music, to college, everything else. They brought that back. That was Slip and Slide. Like, Everybody might try to attribute it to something else. No, that was them. And they would do the bat the basketball thing, take it to the house and and all of that. That was that was slip and slide. And I wasn't home at the time, but every time I would go home, I would see the influence. I would see and people don't know Pitbull used to do a totally different rap style. And he would go hard. He would go hard with these Liberty City. He would go hard. And then along the way, people were like, why don't you include this? Why don't you include that? And he started going a different direction, but had success. So the early records of Pitbull were totally different than what it became into where he became Mr. You know, International Worldwide, that kind of thing. But he's always had success, but it was a matter of what level it was going to be. And uh, yeah, DJ Khaled, that's a whole, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, he could go into motivational speaking if he wants to. I mean, I got the keys. And then we can't forget Rosé. That's who Mm -hmm. led me to want to try Lemon Pepper Wings from Wingstop (laughs) because he mentions them in almost every song that he does, every interview he does. He always has a Wingstop cup. So Miami is still on fire. And for me, I'm glad to see my home state finally get recognition musically in North Carolina because we've always had talent, you know, from Joe to see to mm-hmm. Anthony Hamilton to mm-hmm. Ski Beats and to see now with what's going on with J. Cole. 
Rassidy, the baby. And I think for a long time, North Carolina always felt we would have to follow what's coming out of New York or Atlanta. Whereas now it's like, hey, it's okay to, to be us. To be yourselves, yeah. Well, I think, uh, what's the movie, Drumline? Who was that? Arthur that was in that movie? Because um, he, he was big at the time. Uh, Nick Cannon? No, 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 not Nick. It was the, it was the rap artist that came from NC. Oh, oh Petey Pablo. Yeah, Petey Pablo. So when Petey Pablo came out and did his thing, that put North Carolina back on the map as far as like, okay, I'm going to. And he wasn't shy about saying NC's in the house. So yeah. when that happened, that's when North Carolina's like, oh, we could be ourselves? <laughs> okay. Yeah, because my freshman year in high school, Raise Up came out. All, yeah. Me and all my classmates yeah. we were like, oh, North Carolina. Did he mention my county? No, but close enough. Because for a long time before Petey Pablo came out, we were kind of low-key claiming Virginia because with my neck of the woods being so close and driving distance to the Tidewater okay. area, we were claiming Timberland, Neptunes, and Missy. Like, yeah. we were yeah. from VA, but we were like, eh, that's the closest thing. But Devontae, again, had an eye for talent to have Man. Missy, Timbo, Sweet, so rest in peace, Static Major, you know, I just that whole basement camp. How did the basement even keep all of that in for so long? I, I don't even know. I don't know. Some, I heard that Genuine had a totally different album that he did before he left Devontae to go do the Bachelor album. Because when I first heard the Bachelor album, I was like, oh my God, yeah, what yeah, beat is yeah, this? Because yeah. Timberland was coming out with stuff that was unheard of for R&B production at the time. Yeah, Him and yeah. Missy. He went to work and Missy went to work and she's a stone cold writer. So even to this day, I mean, she, oh man, the stuff that she's done over the years. I mean, I'm, I've always been a big fan of Missy Elliott. So her, her writing style, her cleverness, her intricacies, her, her lean to gospel without being over the top. And I mean, Missy is, she's bad. Yeah, she's a bad woman. Every time I hear Lizzo, she is a descendant of Missy. So it was cool to see Missy in the tempo video with Lizzo kind of saying, hey, she studied me and I'm just pretty much paying it forward. And we can't talk about this man, even though we know everything that's come out since, but you can't deny his musical impact. That guy out of Chicago. You know his name. I'm not going to say it. (laughs) <laughs> definitely had a big influence and uh definitely had a control over the industry where everybody wanted to copy everything um i never i never went to one of his shows i i just for some reason i just couldn't make it in the venue um but the influence is there um definitely studied the isley brothers and everything else but man man it, it's it's sad to see it go down the path that it went down i'm not I can't say I'm completely in shock that it went down that path. I knew some people that dealt with some things over there and I didn't know how it was going to pan out. I was hoping that it wouldn't pan out the way that it did, but I can't say that I'm surprised, unfortunately. Right. Um, Full force and their impact, not only on R&B, but pop, you know, writing All I Have to Give for Backstreet Boys, writing for NSYNC and a lot of those transconnect. Because I believe that they were the ones that kind of gave the groundwork to what Teddy would do later with Keith Sweat and New Jack. They were kind of touching on that with their work with UTFO, Lisa, Lisa, Nicole Jam, and yep. their production. Yeah, their, their production is um, key 
in the transition of uh, a lot of R&B into the hip hop world. Um, if it wasn't for their production into the songs they were doing with Lisa, Lisa and Colt Jam and uh, just their, how they would use their harmonies. The only problem I think people had was they were so built and so strong that they didn't know, people didn't know what to do with their look. And that's unfortunate because it had nothing to do with the look. If you just listen to what they were doing and what the sound was and how they were singing, how passionate it was, then I think you just get the full picture. But for some reason, it didn't translate. And then they did the house party movies. And of course, you get you know stereotyped at, at that point. So I think that hurt what they could do visually. But as far as what they do behind the scenes, Nah, they're some of the yeah. baddest cats in, in the history of music. They're some of the baddest musicians out there. That, and I want you to talk about L.A. and Babyface and Jam and Lewis. Because <laughs> they, those guys, along with Teddy, had a monopoly on R&B and pop music in the late 80, mid to late 80s and early 90s. Jam and Lewis is what I played as a piano player. I studied their notes. I studied their chords. I studied everything about that. L.A. and Face... I mean, they just, if you want to find a melody, it's going to be L.A. and Face, and you can find it in two seconds. I mean, what they did with Bobby Brown, I heard Larry Blackman with Bobby Brown, then I heard L.A. and Face with Bobby Brown, and I like Larry Blackman with Bobby Brown. But L.A. and Face with Bobby Brown just took it and raised it so much. I mean, those are the, the producer duos that influenced all of the 80s and all of the 90s. If you really think about it, they did both decades to the highest level and nobody could touch either one of them. Nobody. No. 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 And you got to give Pebbles credit too, as well, for giving LA and Face the idea of set up shop in Atlanta. And then she yeah. discovered TLC yeah. and at, yeah. before Chili came into the picture. They were second nature. It was T-Boss, okay. Left Eye, and a girl named Crystal. Crystal ended okay. up leaving. And then Chili was a dancer for, rest in peace, Damian Dane. They were signed to the face. Mm -hmm. And then that's how she got into the group. And then I just found this out on T.I.'s podcast with uh, T-Boss and Chili. They mentioned mm -hmm. that SWV was originally going to call themselves then, TLC, yeah. but Pebbles yeah. beat them to the punch for the trademark. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Both names fit the groups in their own unique perspectives. So I guess we, we benefited from both. <laughs> RAV4. RAV4s. I want to yeah. get me a RAV4, $500, and a VCR. <laughs> so um, with Boys to Men, um, mm -hmm. The two album, of course, it was a, not really a big departure in sound, but it was definitely more pop ain't because of the success to enter the road and with the reissue to Cooley High Harmony. I felt that was the better album from Boys because Dallas just had that hard New Jack swing vibe. But you could clearly tell with two that Motown was like, nope, forget R&B. We're going pop, 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 pop. I think they just grew up. I don't think at the time we knew that, but I think they grew up to a point where, where they were ready for that pop level of success. And you, you got to remember, all these groups were out. How are you going to make it in the industry? And where are you going to sit? And Motown had a vision for where they thought they could be. And you know what? They were right. 
mm-hmm. because they, you know they had to compete with us they had to compete with Jodeci they had to compete with all these other groups and nobody gave Boys to Men pretty much after all of us came out again that respect until those records came out and then you know End of the Road and I mean they were on the radio forever and just ever and you know sometimes I would just hear it and be like yeah what, what are we gonna do <laughs> right because I mentioned to you that for the two album Tim and Bob had some songs that they wanted to give the boys but Gerald Busby told them I don't want unknown producers doing songs on the biggest pop act in the world so those yeah. songs ended up going on 112's debut album Oh, is that what happened? Oh, yeah, man. that's the like, Can I Touch You, um, All mm-hmm. of the pa- Pleasure and Pain. Some of those 112 debut album cuts, they were originally for Boys and Men. Oh, man. I would like to hear them do those cuts to see how what it sounded like. Yeah. Now, give me your thoughts on 112, because I think they don't get enough credit. And they, vocally, they were no, a problem. Vocally, they are one of the most talented groups I've heard in a long time. Uh, Slim is his own entity. He has his own voice. He fits in his own lane because of his unique sound and tenor and how he cuts through on the track. But the other guys, they actually are as as talented or more talented than Slim as far as singing. So I don't think they've featured the other guys as much as they should have. And I think that's just uh, Puffy looking at it from a, a commercial point of view. And I think Slim's voice was relatable to everybody being able to sing. And I think that's what he wanted to get across. Get right. across. right, and when I um, I spoke a while back to Brandon Akira from the group Mister, he had mentioned to me that they had a sophomore album all ready to go that Tim and Bob did for him. But really? I think East West was folding at the time or yeah. something to that degree. Yeah. And that album ended up getting canned. But what came from Mr. was Bobby V. And yeah. that led to his solo career, which was, you know, super huge. And I felt Mr. along with Imagine, very underrated. They came out at a time where R&B groups, young-wise, mm-hmm. they weren't really a lot out because besides Subway and So For Real, there wasn't really a lot of teen-oriented R&B groups in the mid-90s. No, and also the, the industry was shutting it down. Like I said, it, it's one of those things where they they didn't want those posters in the room. <laughs> it, it's very simple. And I think we got cheated out of a good Mr. Project. Because I think that would have been one of those projects that really could have gone far because we heard them early on in Blackberry Molasses and and all of that and I think it was going to bust it was really about to just take off and everything just fell apart and it's a shame because we we needed those records to continue the groups to go to a certain level and it just just didn't happen. Right so what do you think makes New Edition so special to where they can have success as a group and solo artists where all six had success, were able to come back together as a group, have more success, and then we see now with the miniseries that just came out, they got the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and what do you think makes them special? I think by them allowing each other to grow, and I think one of the biggest things that happened to them was that BBD was successful. If BBD wasn't successful like they were in their own right, I don't think everything else works just the same because everybody has to respect the entity of, I made a hit record, 
you may take record you may <laughs> and, and there's respect when you when you make hit re- hit records like that and uh because their record went so far and so long and still has one of the most dominating dance tracks ever i think that was the equalizer tech that kept new edition's name being on top and new kids because new kids fall in that same category because my wife and i we went to the mixtape tour and yeah. it was nothing but soccer moms and divorcees yep. at that concert and to still see them be able to sell out shows moms screaming like they're 13 again and to think that two groups from boston would have not only an impact on the r&b side but the pop side as well so what makes new kids special in that same vein as new edition um i think because i mean jordan just being who he is and he has so much energy we met him probably maybe longer was that maybe 15 years ago I met Jordan this is before they did that you know they came back together and Jordan was out just doing whatever and he's just so energetic and and make sure that you want to be around him so while by the time they 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 pulled everything back together they, they sometimes you just have magic with that group like that and there's something that when you get on stage and you're together and you're doing that music and it just works and there's nothing you can explain. There's no formula for it, right. but there are certain characteristics of the groups that it just works like that. Right, and same thing with Backstreet and NSYNC, even though Lou Pearlman put together NSYNC to be kind of like a rival group to Backstreet, even though Backstreet was his first group, both groups have the same special quality about them. Even Backstreet is doing their thing, touring and putting out music as a five piece, while NSYNC you know, dormant because of JT has gone on to eclipse his group as terms of success. But both of those groups still have that same impact. And I think now to where, hmm, Bashy Boys and NSYNC, they're like for the young kids mm-hmm. now what new kids and new edition yeah. were, you know, for me, because I was born like a decade earlier you know to where i wasn't really young i was young young when new edition new kids were in their heyday yeah absolutely and if if there was a day when nsync could actually do something like how new kids is doing it and then i think that would be a happy day for a lot of people justin would probably do a bobby brown set from um, home again i get to do maybe two hours of my stuff maybe get a little extra on the top and i just think with groups, do you think because of social media now that and everybody's all me focused that we'll see groups again? I mean, we have in real life, we have CNCO, but any groups that would have that same impact like you guys, Boys Men, New Edition, New Kids, Backstreet, Instinct. So I think it's just everything goes in cycles and it's just a matter of time before somebody can actually formulate it for the social media world that we live in now. I just think they haven't figured it out or taken the time to figure out how to do it. And uh, I know people have put groups together and try to do it and that kind of thing. It's just really hard. And again, you have to be totally committed to three, four, five other people that are in the group with you. And sometimes that's really hard for people to realize. And everybody as a solo artist, sometimes they feel like I want to make sure that I do what I want to do. And as a member of a group, that doesn't work. 
right now when you guys did the baby i'm yours video you guys went back to howard and shot it who idea was it to shoot it at howard and who do you remember who directed the video all four of us and oh, i can't remember his name uh on was it ward 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 last name ward was the director mm. um but all of us pushed for that uh we knew because the song had a poppy feel to it um, and, and trust me, we, we went through so many versions of that song to get it. And to this day, I don't think everybody's still happy about the version that actually ended up being the version. Uh, but because we went to Howard, it, it put a different spin on it visually that the song could take off and be, you know, well in its own right. And uh, all four of us knew the power of going back to school and doing a visual on campus and, and, and doing trailblazing work where you can show off your campus and and it's kind of recruiting we're recruiting for half that point and, and making sure that people saw our campus and how beautiful it was and 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 showcasing that you can do good things and you could be a, you can do music industry you could do this you could do anything and and still bring it back to where you started yeah uh, I, we want to relate yeah, Ananda Lewis was in the video. And then one thing that I found cool in the video was that Carl, he was wearing a Naughty by Nature, I think, hoodie, right? Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was cool that he was on the low promoting Naughty Wear, you know, Absolutely. with the Naughty by Nature logo. And that just goes to show the cross-pollinization with, you know, R&B going into hip-hop and vice versa. Because if you think about before what Puff was doing at um, Bad Boy and kind of like Uptown as well, merging hip hop and R&B, yeah. seeing Meth and Mary J, Lil' Kim, Mary J, and just how now it's ubiquitous where you have Drake collaborating with an R&B act, whereas yeah. back yeah. then it was still like, you remember the old Reese's Peanut Butter Cup commercials where you had the chocolate bar here and the peanut butter here? Yeah. It was like this, rapping hip hop, but yeah. as soon as they met, hmm, this tastes pretty good. <laughs> well, we came from a world where we were listening to the same stuff that everybody else was. So we tried to incorporate that in our live shows as well. Um, there will always be with the live band, we would do sections of Jump Jump and do House of Pain. And we would just have everybody going crazy because we wanted to integrate that. And then a lot of times on promotional tours, we were on tour with Naughty as well. So we would see them all the time. So. We, we were breaking bread with everybody. And that's kind of how it was. And we were in New York, we go hang out with them. If not, I mean, eventually we had management from Naughty's people, uh, Queen Latifah and Shaquem. They were our managers for a while. Flavor Unit. Flavor Unit was, was our manager. So, you know, we, we dealt with a whole bunch of different people along the way. And, you know, you make it work. Mm, rest in peace, uh, Apache. Um, he was Flavor Unit affiliated. Um, and speaking of Naughty, I'm sure they were loving them nice little residual checks when Don Kinnears hit them up to do the Soul Train thing. So oh what was it like yeah. with you guys shooting Soul Train and interacting with the late, great Don Kinnears? Because I've heard stories from former dancers <laughs> that I've told you that um, he was a tough cookie and no one to mess with. No one to mess with. And we saw Don maybe one or two times. We didn't see him that much because actually I think uh, who's doing, who was hosting the show? I think Stacy was hosting the show, Stacy Dash, and I think Shamar was hosting the show as well. So we saw them a little bit more, but we saw Don backstage and of course he'd come back with his deep voice. How you guys doing? 
okay, I really love your songs. And so you just got that little bit real quick. But his presence was everything. And we were honored to do the shows because we actually won the Soul Train Music Award as well, I think, for new artists as well. And that's one of the, the uh, something that we always cherish um, because we didn't know if that was going to be possible the year before because we were barely put together and to win it the next year. I mean, you never really saw that coming, but you're not, like, wow, we, we, we did it that fast. And between that and the Image Awards, it, it lets you know you put in some work and you're going to get something out of it. Mm. But during the act and seeing how it was growing up and looking at it a certain way and going to the studio and seeing how hard the dancers work, the dancers work very hard. And that as we all hard. know, because of American Soul, dancers weren't paid. You got a two, three piece KFC box. And if you were able to get gigs outside of that, do it. But don't tell Don. But Don had an eye for talent as well because it, him and Dick Griffey put together Solar Records, which in turn put together Shalimar, which featured Jeffrey Daniels and Jody Wiley, who were dancers on the show. And mm -hmm. later, Howard Hewitt came into the group after one of the original singers left. And Howard Hewitt ended up doing the Soul Train theme from 87 to 93, yeah. which was composed yeah. by George Duke, which wow. his stuff, George Duke's stuff, sound very similar to Parliament. And also yeah. George Duke brought Sheila E into the game before she hooked up with Prince. Is that right? Oh yeah, man. yeah. Okay. George George Duke brought Sheila E in um playing bongos and stuff before she went to go to Minneapolis to get purified in the water of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> and thank goodness for that, because I, that that period with Sheila E and Prince, that, that's uh, a genuine great period in music and there was nothing like that and then I, I just heard the original version of uh, Glamorous Life before then and I was like what it transformed to with her and the mm. Timbales yeah it sounded like you could tell it was a rough cut a rough demo because it didn't have that extra punch and the yes. Timbales added that extra punch and oh, then okay. this is how strong the Minneapolis sound was in the mid 80s you had Ready for the World out of Flint Right. Taking right. what was coming out of Minneapolis with O'Sheela, the Jets yeah. with Curiosity, they were from Minneapolis, but yeah. it had that Prince erotic city sound. It was pretty much everything that was coming out of there was white hot, whether it was Prince, whether it was Alexander O'Neill, Sherelle, oh, Janet man. with Control, and it was just a happening spot where even the Human League had to go see Jam and Lewis. Yeah, they had to. But you know who's mad at uh, uh, Ready for the World? Who? Dream Boy. <laughs> oh, I just found out about them like not too long ago because they were good. I mean, They're I just want to know that. your name. And yeah. I think what kind of hurt them was they didn't get that co-sign from the Electrifying Mojo out of no. JLB in Detroit that Ready for the World did. No, that's that one thing. That, that's what hurt them. Yeah, because uh, they were signed to Quest. They were signed to Quincy's label. And I'm like, when you got the backing of Quincy, you you thought you were good. But like you said, that one big cosign from, and that just goes to show how back then, radio DJs, depending on your region and how big you were, you could make or break records and acts. Yeah, I mean, that, that thing right there. I mean, actually, we met, uh, come to think of Detroit, we met UMV. We did a show with them right before they got signed, I think. 
and they they sang all their songs and that kind of thing. And they're a really good group too. And they really were signed to Maverick Heads. Something's going on. Yeah. They yeah. were they were yeah. dope. Um, I thought yeah. Coming of Age group out of Cali was dope. TQ, mm -hmm. who later signed to Cash mm -hmm. Money, put out West Side, yeah. was in that group. And the Bay Area, I can't be remiss if we don't talk about the Bay. I mean, the Bay in terms of music. You know, oh, you had Sly and the Family Stone, mm -hmm. uh, Larry Graham, mm -hmm. uh, I think Confunctions from out the Bay, Tower, Power. Tower Power, Two mm -hmm. Shorts out the Bay, E-40, yeah. Club Nouveau, MC Hammer, Tony, 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 Tony. Loonies. So what do you think is some in the water in the Bay Area that produce all these great talents? Um, I just think that environment, the way they work and... Uh, I think their musicianship up there, because I listen to a lot of uh, now the San Francisco Jazz Ensemble, and they they just, you know, it's so calm and just inviting, and but they're really serious about the musicianship. And I think that competition factor for what they want to do, I think that comes out in the Bay Area a lot, where it's different, it's just different in LA than it is there. And I think because you have classic acts from, from those eras, um, from the older generation. Oh, New Birth too, from up there. So be because you have all those classic ads that did well, you want to do as well or better and incorporate your sounds from them. And Sheila E's influence on the Latin influence in that environment. I mean, it's just crazy. crazy. Yeah. Bay Area is crazy. But I love going to that area just so I can hear something different. Yeah, and we definitely got to shout out Jordan Peele because a new generation now know what I got five on it means. <laughs> yep. Yep, because when I first saw the trailer for us and when I heard I got five on it, which samples Why You Treat Me So Bad by Club yes. Nouveau, by the way, I was yeah. like, I'm sold. You can have my money. I'm going to go see it just because he put the loonies in there <laughs> alone. And now right. I think that with Houston, you mentioned Jay Prince and you mentioned Beyonce, to see her being that cultural force to where she put out a movie on Disney Plus where promoting her blackness. Did you think that seeing her from Destiny's Child to where she is now being the brand that, that she is, what made her the one to say, hey, she got it? I think everybody always knew that she was the one, mm -hmm. but they didn't know how to. Uh, they didn't know how to manifest it early on. Um, she was definitely the one that worked the hardest. The one that they all worked hard. Don't get me wrong, but she was the one that was going to be the one out of that group to make it go that far. Mm -hmm. And then we see Moesha get reissued onto Netflix or so a new generation right. discovering Brandy and her braids. Now, Brandy, huge success. R&B pop across the board. Monica, just as successful. And when they put together the boy's mind, Dallas Austin, he did an interview on DJ Vlad, said that Monica and Brandy weren't really feeling each other. And then Monica had to show Brandy before the VMAs that she was from the A. Right, right. And that's just one of those things, again, the competition, it just takes over. And, you know, you get near a stage or on that stage and you got that mic in your hand and, you know, I got to show everybody what I'm about. And you, you only have one opportunity to do that. And if you don't do it, everybody's going to talk about you real bad. So you got to make it count. And Monica was like, I'm going to make it count because people think I don't have it and I have it. 
And this is what Whitney was talking about. Mm. Few more things that I want to get y'all out of here. Um, what was it like performing on Showtime at the Apollo? Uh, we did the Apollo, but we did a, a feature on the Apollo where we actually did uh, the Zoot Suit performance. And that was actually, I, I felt like I was in a special place that was historic and in the middle of Harlem. And once you go down to that stage and, and put it on there, it, there's nothing like it. I mean, you just go down there. Apollo is unique in itself, but to be there performing and, and feel the energy from the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, there's nothing like it. And again, we have a lot of things that I remember from, from, our, uh, from our past. And there are special things that happen, and that's what that's one of the most special moments. Um, doing Arsenio because you got to think about it. Arsenio at this time was huge, and I was surprised Fox then snatch it up and say, "Hey, we're going to put you on exclusive with us instead of being syndicated across the country." Because yeah. you got to think about it, people. For those of you that are too young to remember Arsenio, this was at a time when late night talk shows didn't really feature urban acts performing. Right. It was pretty much pop or rock only. Some yeah. rap here and there, but Arsenio was blackity black, 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 and unapologetic about it. Yeah, and uh, he was so kind to us, and he treated the artists like they were people, and I'm not sure that everybody always knew that about his staff and the show itself, but they went above and beyond treating the artists like first class everything, everything just how they treated it. And for us to be on that show after looking at it from being in DC to showing up in LA and at the last minute being added just so we could sit on the set and show people for the first time who we were. I mean, that, that was a, a unique experience for us. And, uh, and we actually, got to, <laughs> we got to fly our moms out. So our moms were in the audience, like the four moms were, were in LA together. And we're all sharing this moment and people at home are getting to watch this at the same time. So there's there's a classic moment with Arsenio that nobody else could experience but us. Mm. And do you still dabble in music? And do you think that if we'll ever see a track with with you guys? Because I'm sure you get asked this all the time and often. I get, I get asked all the time and that's pretty much normal the way it operates. Um, I always work on stuff, but I haven't been able to put it to the right thing. And you know, being in the middle of the pandemic and the elections and stuff like that, um, music can't just be average right now. I think it should be special and it should have some meaning towards something. Um, you just can't put out any type of track right now unless you're somebody who's at the top of the charts, you know. But as far as what we do, you know, I mean, I don't write anything off, but at the same time, I, it just has to. It has to make sense. All right. All right. Fair enough. Last thing, your thoughts on Kurt Franklin and with him taking what James Cleveland before him, what Andre Crouch and meshing the secular and the sanctified into being a huge success to where he is now. I have no problem with it. I mean, there's some music that can't be exposed unless you unless you have a current or more current form that exposes the, the, the roots of gospel. And uh, I think him being able to do it and do it in such a way where it's accessible. I mean, just think about it. He, he has serious channel on, on his own. 
he plays whatever music he wants. He has gospel artists doing their own shows on there. I mean, that opens up a window for people to, to do stuff that in gospel they couldn't do before or be exposed to. And, you know, back in the 90s, there was no route like that. It was amazing that people knew Commission and the Winans, but they did because word of mouth, because it was powerful in the community. But now you get this gospel channel to play your song. That's a, that's a whole different realm. And Kirk Franklin, by his relationships, opens that door up. Right, because I remember Stomp being played on MTV and with Revolution, he had Roddy Jerkins do the track. And Roddy Jerkins, another producer that doesn't get enough credit. So shout out to Roddy Jerkins, shout out to Warren Baby Dub, shout out to Donald Lawrence, shout out Clark Sisters, and thank God for that Lifetime movie because everybody got to see how vocally the Clark Sisters influenced SWV, Escape, and vote pretty much any female R&B group of the 90s were vocally influenced by the Clark sisters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important that people get exposed to all the singers that they think they know. And then you hear the stories about what stuff that people have gone through. And then you, you look at life a little bit different because everybody thinks everything's easy once you get to a certain point, And it's not. You have to keep working hard at it and you have to you have to make everything count and the thing is once you get on that stage like i said you gotta you gotta show what you're about if not people write you off or they say oh it, it was all right you never want anybody to say it was just all right that nope so <laughs> treat it like you're on stage amateur night at showtime at the apollo well i did and sandman came out but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day so um do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude the podcast and give out your social I think for me, I just want to shout out my mom because she's always stepped by me no matter what, uh, being in this industry. She always thought I was going to go into some different industries and that kind of thing, but she's always stepped by me and she's one of my best friends in the world and my family and everybody who's just gotten through me and helped me get through the pandemic. I've been dealing with diabetes type two for the last, what, five years or so. So I've been controlling that a little bit. Um, so anybody who needs help with that, you know, just hit me up. No problem. I'll, I'll elaborate on how to get through everything. And uh, I'm so grateful for my wife, my daughter, my son. And uh, they, they're the rocks of my, of my life and keep me going. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this interview along with the video portion will be available on Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Apple Podcasts. And also YouTube on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J5. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Mark Gay from the R&B group, Shy. Mark, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, bro. Oh, my, my pleasure. Anytime, Jay. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. Uh, no problem.